Uh, the meeting is now open to the public. Uh, Gemma and Malisha will be joined by Starleaf. Philip has uh, sent his apologies and has delegated his authority to Malicious. And are any, do I have any other apologies? No. Okay. Uh, declarations of interest. All members are ob obliged to declare any relevant financial or other interest at each committee meeting as applicable. I have a particular interest in correspondence item 1016 on Strayed Primary School, which I am fighting to keep open. So, therefore, I will pass over to the Deputy Chair at that stage for when we consider the item of 1016 in the agenda. Any other declarations of interest? Thank you. Uh, moving on to Chairperson's business. Do we have the new Economy Minister up and running yet? We do not. All right, OK. Uh, I'd just like to pass on our congratulations to uh, Paul Frew on his impending elevation to the Minister of Economy and to his replacement on the committee, who will be coming as the Deputy Chairman, uh, who will be uh, Mr Keith Buchanan. And we think he will be taking his place on the committee this next. time next week. Okay. Are we agreed to pass on our congratulations? Agreed. Yes. Okay. Uh, next item, a voting on capital. At last week's committee meeting, I asked officials if the Assembly votes on capital as part of the Budget Bill. The answer provided appeared to be no, but in reality it appears the officials meant to say not quite. Uh, the Minister clarified yesterday, indicating that the estimates include a resource to cash reconciliation, which sets out the capital, capital by department. Furthermore, when the Assembly votes on the supply resolution on the bill, the former and Schedule 1 of the latter included a revised cash balance figure, which has the capital figures from the above reconciliation folded in. Thus, votes for the supply resolution on the bill do indeed provide authority for capital expenditure, although members do not vote explicitly for capital allocations. Peter, just a quick one. What about the question about accruing? And uh, I think what the minister indicated was that uh, if the uh, departments exceed their accruing resources so they get more income than is set out in the bill, that automatically goes back to the consolidated funds. So, but I'm not clear on whether that goes back to the department for reallocation or whether it goes back to Westminster. I think it's the former. I think it's going back. Could we ask the question via the DALO if we're content? We're content. Great. Uh, draft minutes of proceedings on the 2nd of June. Draft minutes of the meeting are at page 7. Are we content with the draft minutes on the 2nd of June are an accurate record of proceedings? Are we agreed? Agreed. Matters arising. There are no matters arising. Uh, could I ask, therefore, the next item on the agenda is the Oral Evidence uh, Office for Budget Responsibility, Fiscal Council for Northern Ireland. Uh, the Committee will now receive oral evidence from Richard Hughes, Chairperson for the Office of Budget Responsibility. Can I bring Richard up on Starleaf, please? Hi, Richard. Can you hear us? I can. Can you hear me? Excellent. We can, indeed. And thank you very much, indeed, for taking the, uh, taking the time to come and uh, sort of talk with us today. Uh, unfortunately, due to COVID, um, many of our members are either available on Starleaf and are late sitting in the uh, chamber last night. Uh, we're not, we don't have the full cohort of our people here today, but I can assure you that we're particularly interested in listening to your evidence. And obviously, the main issue for us is that we are looking to get, we are setting up an independent fiscal council and an independent fiscal commission. And what we're seeking to do is getting as much evidence to see what is the best framework for setting that up as well. We've also received quite a lot of evidence from both from the Scotland, Wales, the Republic of Ireland and OECD. And obviously, I think I can speak for most of the committee and say we're very minded that this is something Northern Ireland desperately needs. We're just not quite sure yet of how we want to sort of do it as well. And the name that keeps on coming up time and time again 
is the OBR. So, uh, and indeed, that's why we're looking forward to listening to you. Uh, team, the clerk's briefing papers is at page 16. The relevant extracts from the Budget Responsibility and National Audit Act 2011 is at page 21. Copies of the OBR Charter and HM Treasury framework document is at page 35. An extract from the 2020 OECD review of the OBR is at page 93. And copies of the Memorandum of Understanding, Terms of Reference and Financial Framework document from the, French or the Welsh Government, why did I say French Government Freudian slip, at page 96. And a copy of the 2020 OBR report on the Welsh Government tax revenues at page 104. Uh, Richard, can I ask you to sort of make your opening statement and then we can get stuck in? Great. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Chairman, for the opportunity to appear before the committee. Um, and let me say for my part that I really welcome the establishment of the Northern Ireland Fiscal Council and, and also the committee's interests in its mandates and activities. Uh, let me also say at the start that I don't think you could have made a better choice as chair of the uh, Northern Irish Fiscal Council than, than Robert Choate, uh, whose leadership and vision over the last 10 years has really made the OBR uh, what the OECD described in its independent review as being a model for independent fiscal institutions around the world. Um, and uh, I, I should emphasize that Robert was at the, at, had over a decade, well, a, a full decade at the helm of the OBR as chairman, um, while I'm still in my first year. So I should, I should advise you that if any of my testimony directly contradicts his, um, I'd suggest that you weight our views according to our experience, um, and his is much more prodigious uh, than mine. Um, given the OBR's dual mandate uh, of providing both the executive branch in the UK with its official economic and fiscal forecast, but also informing Parliament and the public's consideration of fiscal matters, our own relationship with the Treasury Committee here in Westminster, but also with the Finance Committees of the devolved assemblies have really always been vital to the effective fulfilment of our functions. Uh, here in Westminster, the Treasury Committee um, in Parliament is not only one of the most important customers for our analysis, but they've also been an important guarantor of our independence from the executive. And indeed, the chair of the committee typically starts each of his sessions on our forecasts by asking whether the government has sought to exert any pressure on us to change our forecasts or revise any of our judgments. And for the, and for the last 10 years, the answer um, has always been no, but that's an example of how important it is um, the, that, the, that the legislature takes interest um, in the operation of, of the council, even after its establishment, and, and assures that, uh, that its mandate is being respected and that its independence is being upheld. So I'm really encouraged that the committee is taking such a strong interest in the legal institutional arrangements for the establishment of the Northern Ireland Fiscal Council. And we can come on to, in questions, uh, what are the mechanisms that have been most important to ensuring our independence um, and impact on fiscal policy here in, in the UK. But before we do, I, I thought I might offer a few reflections based on my relatively brief tenure as chair of the OBR since October um, about the role that we play in the fiscal policy making process in different parts of the UK. And when I think about what the OBR has contributed to the fiscal debate um, around the country, I'd really highlight four things. I think what the OBR has brought to the fiscal policy making process over the last 10 years has been first and foremost, a more accurate and realistic economic and fiscal forecast underpinning the government's budget decisions. So I should really stress, especially in the context of the last year, no economic institution has been particularly good at spotting crises, uh, shocks, turning points um, in economic activity of the sort that coronavirus has been. And, and I think that this remains an ongoing challenge for institutions like ourselves and for economic forecasters around the world who are trying to predict, essentially predict the future. 
but I'm not always good at seeing uh, seeing things which can blow those predictions dramatically off course, um, like like the pandemic, but also like things like the 2008 financial crisis and things that have come before. Mm -hmm. I think a, a second contribution that the OBR has made and, and is really not to be underestimated is the, is the contribution that it's made to greater transparency um, about the assumptions underpinning the government's economic and fiscal plans. And this is transparency about the economic assumptions that go into the forecast, but also greater transparency about the detail underpinning the fiscal forecasts. And I think this is an important consideration in Northern Ireland, where I know some of the concerns that people have expressed um, around fiscal policy making up until now has been just a sort of the opacity um, of, the, of the government's budgetary plans and the, and the need to shine more of a light um, on what goes into them. I think a third contribution that the OBR has made has, has been to make uh, the government more accountable for issues around sustainability and risk. These things that are beyond a typical budget planning horizon and also sort of off the edges of a typical budget forecast. What are the potential threats and shocks that might blow the government's fiscal plans off course in the medium term? And also what are the looming long-term threats of sustainability um, that, are, that are lingering just beyond the budget horizon? Um, things like demographic change, things like climate change, uh, these things which are sort of slow burns that affect the public finances over, over long periods. And then uh, fourth, and, 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 and not, not to understate, I, I think that uh, the OBR, together with our sister institution in Scotland and the work that we've done with the Welsh office, I think have aided the process of fiscal coordination across uh, the United Kingdom and, and with, the, with the devolved nations. Um, I, I think that at the very least, we've helped to inform discussions between Westminster and, and the and, uh, and the other, the other governments that make up the UK about fiscal decision making and provided a better information base uh, for that process. And I think we, we very much welcome the establishment of, of the Northern Ireland Fiscal Council as, as a counterpart in that work and look forward to working with them to help provide even greater transparency about the, link, the, the linkages between uh, the Westminster government uh, and the government instalment. Um, Looking at what I think has been the keys to, to our success, uh, and, I, and I, you know, it, it was very nice to read from the, from the OECD report, but I, I don't at all take any credit for what they said. It was nice to hear that we're considered to be a model fiscal institution in the world. I mean, what has contributed to that success um, in the OBR? I, I think, firstly, a, a strong but simple legal framework which safeguards our independence, and I'm happy to come on to what that means in, um, in practice when you think about your own founding legislation. Secondly, uh, a clear but fairly limited mandate, and I think, and, and by limited, I think the, the important thing about our role is that it is, it is limited to the conduct of analysis and not to the provision of policy advice to government, which I think would threaten to drag us into the policy debate and potentially undermine our important independent role as analysts to inform that debate. I think a third thing which we're, which we're given in legislation is broad discretion about how we fulfill that mandate. We're not prescribed to produce um, beyond a handful of, uh, of documents over the course of the year, including two forecasts to support the budget, um, any particular kind of information, or and, and indeed not limited to providing just that information. Um, we're allowed to fulfill our mandate to inform the public debate about fiscal sustainability in any manner that we choose, um, and we can look into any issues that we think are relevant. Related to that, and a fourth key to our success, I think, is the right to access information that enables us to meet that mandate. We have a legal right to, to get information out of the executive branch. We don't have to ask the Treasury's permission. Um, we don't need to even ask a minister's permission. Officials are obliged to provide us that information as a matter of law. 
Fifth, I think we, we are given sufficient resources to deliver our, to deliver our mandate. Um, we, we, are, you know, we, are, we are headed toward being an institution of around 40 people. Um, I, I think that is enough to deliver the limited mandate that we have. We, we have nothing like the hundreds of economists that the Congressional Budget Office in the US has or the, or the larger number of e economists that something like the Dutch Central Planning Bureau have, but they have a much broader mandate than we, than we have and a much closer relationship, I should say, with the, the legislative with the legislative process within Congress in the US, in that they they actually serve individual congressmen in the drafting of bills. Um, and then uh, sixth and finally, uh, and again, not to understate it, I think strong support from the Treasury Committee in, uh, in, in Parliament and also the wider economic community in the work that we do. Um, they're important clients for us. They tell us what they want to see in our reports. And as I mentioned, also they're important guardians of our independence from the executive, which helps ensure that those reports are independent um, and hard-hitting. But let me let me conclude by also offering some thoughts on issues that I think have proven to be more challenging. Um, I think, albeit with the caveat that the last nine months, um, which have been my first nine months in the job, have been a really challenging time for everybody. And so, and, and I think some of these challenges reflect the fact that we are just operating in a very difficult environment for economic policy making and indeed decision making at every every level of government and every part of government. Um, I think one challenge uh, has been timetables um, and sort of budget timetables, and these these have proven to be a headache for everyone, not just in Westminster, but I think also in Stormont um, and in Edinburgh and, uh, and in other places. And this has been especially true over the past year, where we've seen more than a dozen budget-sized fiscal announcements that we needed to that we needed to keep track of an institution, as an institution. Um, and many of those announcements were made outside of and, and without an updated economic and fiscal forecast, really out of necessity. The Chancellor has had to make decisions on the hoof, the same as being true of the finance ministers in the devolved administrations. But it creates complexities and difficulties for not just ourselves, but also the Scottish Fiscal Commission in trying to keep pace with events, in trying to align forecasts which are produced at different times, and in trying to capture all the decisions that have been made at different levels of government and also their interdependencies because of course the resources that um, you have to deploy in Stormont and, and that your colleagues have in, in Edinburgh uh, depend on decisions uh, made in Westminster. A second challenge that we found is, is trying to find ways of communicating risk and uncertainty and trying to avoid excessive fo focus just on our central forecasts. Yet the last year has taught us that um, no, you know, uh, forecasts are only as good um, as, they're, as, as the day they're produced, and after that, events take over. And it is very, and, and you know, we've seen two uh, sort of once once in a lifetime shocks uh, hit the UK economy in the in the space of the last two decades. Neither of which were anticipated um, by the forecasts produced even a few months before. Um, and we have tried in the work that we do to emphasise how much uncertainty there is around the fiscal outlook, including providing different scenarios this time around for the path of the pandemic, um, including options where vaccines worked, but also options where vaccines didn't work and trying to help policymakers appreciate how to prepare for the full range of potential scenarios uh, for the pandemic itself. I think we've made some progress in that, including through publications like the Fiscal Risks Report and Fiscal Sustainability Reports, which really focus um, on, uh, on, on the wider realm of possibilities that might unfold in the coming years. But I think still there's a, there can be a sort of preoccupation with what is your precise point estimate for GDP this year, next year, the year up. A third challenge I think has been that some elements of the public finances remain more opaque than others. And I, I think here I would emphasize uh, departmental expenditure limits, which make up sort of roughly half of total public spending 
and on which the Northern Ireland block grant is based, uh, we essentially forecast as almost a lump sum um, based on discussions with the Treasury about how much of it they, uh, they plan, you know, they've planned over the coming year and how much they expect to execute within those plans in the coming year. Um, and the fact that at least for the last, for the last year, uh, the government has been effectively operating with just an annual budget and not a multi-year horizon for departmental expenditure limits means that our forecast for, for Dell departmental expenditure limits um, is, uh, is, is much more indicative beyond the year ahead than things like our forecast for welfare spending, where you can predict case numbers, you can predict uprating, governments have stated policies in these areas, and you can forecast them on a, on a more technical basis. Essentially, Dell is, is, a, is a political commitment um, of the government, um, which we take into account on our forecast with a bit of discounting. Um, it is not a technical exercise for the likes of us, but I think we need to, we need to improve on that. Um, and then fourth and finally, uh, we've been operating at the moment uh, in, the, in Westminster without any clear fiscal rules for government. Uh, the fiscal targets set out in legislation expired in March of this year, and they were, they were, they were broken um, by very large margins as a result of the fiscal shock of the pandemic. Uh, since then, the Chancellor has outlined uh, a set of fiscal object set of objectives for fiscal policy, um, which he's committed to uh, codifying in legislation in at some point over the rest of this year. But for the moment, they are vague in terms of both you know precise values as well as deadlines, and that means that it's just difficult for us to fill the part of our mandate, which is to say whether or not the Chancellor is meeting those objectives. Um, None of these issues that I've raised are, are, are easy to solve, and, and none of them can be resolved by ourselves alone. Um, but I do think that working collectively across countries um, and also between governments, fiscal councils, and legislatures, we can make progress on, on all of them. And they are, and then they're by no means the, the full list of things where we need to make progress uh, collectively as, as, a, as a fiscal community. Um, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts on the role of the, of the, the Northern Ireland Fiscal Council can play in, in helping to improve that. I'm really happy to, to take any questions that you might have. Richard, thank you very much indeed. And look, I'm going to get st stuck straight in. Um, look, our budgeting process is, uh, you know, we've, we've had our challenges this year, but we've never not had challenges. And I think, <laughs> to put it politely, we have never not had a, some sort of crisis or something or issuing with the, the budgets and sort of the presentation of information as we've gone through. Um, and look, some of it is down to sort of delays and disputes with Westminster, but very often it's sort of our own internal issues as well. Um, but the Welsh Government appears to have developed an MOU with you, which allows a draft budget based on your projections. Now, I know we don't have devolved taxes, but because it's, it can use in your projections, so then it can be devolved and debated regardless of delays at Westminster. Do you think that we could have something like that in Northern Ireland? Because you know, it, it just seems to me sometimes that even if we had a baseline that we were able to sort of plan against, looking at sort of information that came from a, an independent fiscal council, that would at least be able to let us know how much we're off the delta and the deviation as we come through. But at least it would set a framework for us to start on. But what's your thoughts? I, I, I think it, it can help. Although I would I would stress that we do. Uh, two economic forecasts a year, and those are done to support the budget process in Westminster. They don't necessarily coincide with the timetables and the needs of the governments in the devolved administrations. And one thing which we, we, we're not able to do, basically for resourcing reasons, is do bes bespoke forecasts for 
devolved nations out, out with the forecast that we do for the UK as a whole, because essentially those forecasts piggyback on uh, the, the economic forecast we do for the UK as a whole. It has been the case in Scotland that the Scottish Fiscal Commission, which has a much uh, has, has, is, is a relatively well-resourced fiscal council for, for a devolved administration, and obviously the, the Welsh don't have their own fiscal council. They do their own economic forecast um, uh, for Scotland, and they forecast their own tax revenues and, uh, and, and welfare and compare it against ours. And, and that is, of course, better suited to the timetables that they have. And, and we've had instances in the, uh, even the last 12 months where the Scots have gone before us in terms of producing a forecast um, because they've had to they've had to fulfill their own timetabling needs. So I, I think it can, be, it can be part of the solution. And I think in general, um, regular updating forecasts is something which, which needs to be done in the context of crises anyway. Um, I think our ability to provide a bespoke forecast for Northern Ireland um, to precisely fit your needs might be more of a challenge. Um, and I think this, this comes to the question of what would the role of the, of the Fiscal Council be in Northern Ireland, whether it would have its own forecasting capacity and and and, uh, and mandate or whether it would piggyback on our own if it were to piggyback on ours unfortunately it would have to basically accept the, the vintage of whenever that is produced and if your process is at a happens at a different stage than ours there is a risk that it's um if events move on that it that becomes out of date but you're just a quick one you said there the, the scots produced something ahead of the obr this time around uh, when they did it how far away was it from the model that you were looking at it was different, um, but mostly basically because uh, because of the timing. It was produced a few months after um, we had done our most recent forecasts, um, and what we understood about the uh, about the progress of the pandemic um, had changed. Vaccines had you know vaccines had uh, at the time the Scottish did it um, had had been developed, and that was good news relative to an earlier forecast that we'd done. But then our next forecast, which took account of the even better news about both the effectiveness of the vaccine and how quickly it looked like we were going to be able to roll them out um, and uh, and and lift restrictions meant that our, our subsequent forecast was even better. So um, there weren't so much differences of methodology, but timing timing has been everything in the last 12 months in terms of understanding uh, the impact of the pandemic and public health restrictions on the economy and then forecasting what the lifting of those restrictions is going to mean for the recovery and activity as we come out of the pandemic. Okay, thanks very much today. Um, Jim, Jim Allister. Much. Good, good afternoon. A um, couple of areas I wanted to cover with you. The OBR already gets information from Northern Ireland. Um, and I want to explore what happens to that information. It receives Northern Ireland data both from the Treasury in the run-up to each budget and autumn statement and directly from Northern Ireland during the uh, twice yearly AMI exercises. What does the OBR do with that information? So we use it uh, to update outturn against our forecasts for, for departmental spending and for welfare spending. And then we, it becomes the input into our own forecasts for, for departmental spending and, and for, for welfare. Um, I mean, because, uh, Northern Ireland is a relatively small part of both of those. It doesn't form a very big part of that, that forecast. But nonetheless, um, for adjusting for outturn and, and looking at the forecast for the coming years, um, it, uh, Northern Ireland is a separate separate item within departmental expenditure limits. And welfare spending in, in, in Northern Ireland feeds into our welfare forecast that we provide to the government. And, uh, am I correct? There's no 
memorandum of understanding covering any of that? Is that right? Uh, there, there is not, I mean, mainly because we don't have a direct uh, relationship with yourselves of the kind that we have with the Welsh government, where we're actually providing forecast inputs into the Welsh government's budget process. Um, and we rely basically on the memorandum of understanding we have with the Treasury on behalf of the UK government um, to get what information that we need out of the, out of the Treasury as it concerns uh, our spending and all that. Given that um, Northern Ireland's budgetary arrangements are very much focused on the Northern Ireland grant, and we're not in a situation of balancing uh, income with, with expenditure, what room is there really for, or what use is there for a fiscal council in that very limited uh, situation? What what what's going to be the added value of a fiscal council in that in that scenario? I, I think you're right that for them, in what you're implying in your question, that uh, that one of the functions that fiscal councils serve around the world is that they, they provide a macroeconomic forecast for the government on which to base its economic and fiscal plans. Because essentially, uh, because Northern Ireland doesn't really have its own revenues and because its revenues really depend on the revenues and spending decisions of the UK government as a whole, it doesn't make a lot of sense um, for, uh, for at this stage in the process to have a fiscal council producing a macroeconomic forecast for Northern Ireland. It may be, it, it may be interesting to business in Northern Ireland um, and it may be interesting for other reasons, but it's not really essential to producing the budget because actually the budget depends on the block grant you get from, uh, you know, from the UK. Uh, I think there is an important role, however, that we play beyond the forecasting role, which is to provide greater transparency about um, the composition of spending, um, uh, the, the challenges and pressures on spending over the medium to long term, the sustainability of the government's fiscal plans. And I think that is a role that that is a role that, I, that a fiscal council in Northern Ireland could fulfil. That kind of scrutiny of the public finances function that you do, looking at its composition, looking at its evolution, um, and then I think, and also making sure that it's based on a credible set of assumptions um, about a, uh, and, 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 and a realistic set of assumptions um, that match the pressures that are being put on on different parts of the parts of, uh, of the, the service. And uh, speaking of such scrutiny. Um, in Northern Ireland, we have an astonishing level of spend on welfare, over five billion pounds a year, which in which in the scale of the total spending is truly shocking. Would there be a role for the fiscal council to look into that, and particularly the robustness of any anti-fraud measures? And how they're operating would that be a useful function? Uh, that, that is, a, I think that, and that's a function that we provided for the UK government. We produce a publication called the Welfare Trends Report, which looks at what are the long-run trends um, in welfare spending over time, and what are the pressures on welfare spending over the medium term. And I think that helps to sort of frame the debate about, um, uh, you know, why is it the government spends large amounts on welfare in some areas, perhaps less in, in others. What we also do is we are a check on the realism of the government's plans to, uh, you know, to change welfare policy. Um, something that the OBR did for many years was scrutinise the plans for the rollout of universal credit. 
and ask tough questions about whether this rollout, whether the timetable for that rollout, which was quite aggressive, was really realistic, and whether the savings that were then anticipated as a result of the rollout of universal credit were really going to materialize. And I think over, over a series of forecasts and some quite tough discussions between ourselves and the Treasury, I think we got to a much more realistic forecast for and much slower forecast for the rollout of UC and therefore fewer savings coming out of the process. And so I think there's both there's both a role in, 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 in terms of understanding underlying trends and what's happening to the, the overall mass of welfare, but also providing greater scrutiny about uh, the government's plans for reforming welfare if, if, if and when those materialize. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Jim. Matthew. Thanks, Chair. Um, am I audible? Thank you, um, Richard, for coming and giving this evidence. Um, what are your uh, overall perceptions of the budget-making process um, uh, of the Northern Ireland Executive and, by extension, the Assembly, i.e. how it's scrutinised? I mean, I, I should say that I'm I'm relatively new to the role here, um, uh, and so I've I, and, and I haven't been directly involved in the budget making process um, in Northern Ireland or the scrutiny that you do, uh, you know. But having you know, be, being an active consumer of the information that that is produced as part of that process, I mean, there is there is the at the moment the documentation is relatively limited um, in terms of. Uh, you know, it, it, it provides a breakdown of spending by department, um, you know, some, some breakdowns of spending on welfare, uh, you know, the split between current and capital spending. But there is, if, if you compare that to the amount of information that we provide uh, about, the UK, about the UK government budget, uh, it is relatively limited. A lot of the questions that need to be asked about budgets is what are the assumptions underpinning the numbers, not what are the, what are the numbers themselves. The, the numbers themselves are... Are the things that parliamentarians need to vote as a matter of law, but what but what matters for whether they're credible, what matters for whether they're sustainable, is what assumptions you're making about their growth or their reduction, um, and then also scrutiny around what are the assumptions being made about the impact of different policies. Are there heroic assumptions being made about how much you can save in a particular area, um, or are there heroic assumptions being made about how how slowly some items of spending are going to grow, or how quickly some items of spend of tax are going to rise? So. It's the sort of underpinning assumptions which are, which I think are are less apparent from the documentation that the government produces. And the other thing which I note is that you basically get one year, um, and for the purposes of fiscal policy, you're along for the ride um, for the year ahead. Um, the things you can change is the arc of spending and the arc of tax over a five-year period. Um, and just think about this government's current tax raising plans. Most of the rises in tax come in. Um, in 2025, um, and uh, and and so and so in that sense, uh, near-term decision making is pretty constrained. It's medium-term decision making where you have more options and more choices. Uh, that's really useful because you hit on the, on the question of um, medium and long-term policy making and uh, budget setting. And obviously, as you said, it's dependent on the block grant, and the block grant has tended to be the budgets have tended to be one year. Um, uh, in recent years, what? Um, uh, but on the subject of macro of a macroeconomic forecast and whether it's useful or sensible for um, Northern Ireland, the fiscal council here to produce its own um, uh, macroeconomic forecast as part of its work, would it would it be useful or helpful as a um, as a tool in uh, explaining and and uh, 
um, basing uh, longer term. If we have a multi-year budget, and we we hope we hopefully will have one after this year's spending review, would it not be helpful to have a discrete um, uh, macroeconomic forecast on which to base longer term policies and uh, and with which to explain to the public how those policies were being made or why they were being made? So I could. I could see it being an input into the making of welfare policy because that t- it tells you things like how many unemployed people are you, are you going to have, um, how many how many likely claimants are you going to have to the welfare system. I, I think to some extent those numbers, however, can be generated from our own forecasts um, with a few uh, you know, by, by making a few assumptions in the way in which we provide the same information to the Welsh the Welsh government for their own welfare planning. I, I, given that given that you haven't got many of your own revenues, um, you know that's one very big reason not to produce uh, macroeconomic forecasts just for the sake of uh, just for the sake of Northern Ireland. And then I, I think on your question about well, then how do you make decisions about the rest of spending? So not welfare spending, but spending on public services. One thing I would say is that there is in every country a lively debate about the feedback between government policy on the one hand and the economy on the other. And I think where you know where, where governments oftentimes want to believe that if they uh, spend lots of money on infrastructure, for example, or lots of money on education, you can get big growth effects um, in you know later on in the forecast from mm. the impact of these things. And the reality is, um, you know, these these kind of changes operate on economies over a period of decades. If you start educating more children now, or you educate them better now, they're not going to be in the workforce for ten to fifteen years. Those things, those sorts of interventions, don't really show up in, in economic forecasts for very long periods, if at all. And the same is true of investments in infrastructure. It takes you five years to build much of this infrastructure, so you don't really see, apart from the demand side benefit, much of the supply side benefit for um, you know, decades, if not if not generations. And so, uh, I, I'm not sure if, if what you were looking for was what is the return on this transport investment project? Why can't I see it in the forecast? Well, the, the answer is because it's somewhere way out in the distance and it's probably quite so it's probably quite small and getting lost in the forecast to forecast changes when you take on when you take into account outturn or small changes to inflation or small changes to things like interest rates. Okay. Um, that's really useful. Given you you know part of um, the UBR's job and something that's clearly done very well and in a sense Externally, the IFS does something of this as well in terms of giving um, the public and parliament a uh, an independent, um, uh, well, a, as it were, a, a, um, a watchdog or a check on government policymaking, but also uh, an explanatory, um, a job of education that you kind of uh, talked about. Um, is there an argument that uh, given, and uh, this is a statement that I'm making, I'm not asking you to endorse it, but given that... Uh, w- People have argued that you know, the policy-making landscape in Northern Ireland has been uh, relatively, uh, perhaps, unambitious. There hasn't been; it is, it's been very short-term. I think there's there's quite a lar- large amount of consensus that policy-making and uh, and budget-setting has been short-term here. Is there a job of education that would be served for the fiscal council and having uh, macroeconomic forecasting power? Because even if the even if the the as you say the short-term benefit of um, trying to uh, produce, you know, trying to forecast uh, a multiplier effect on, on a one-year economic, you know, high street voucher scheme that we're doing this year, for example, is limited and economically dubious. There is a public education job to be done uh, in terms of explaining how longer-term policy 
options such as investment infrastructure or uh, some kind of skills policy um, would have a change. So, uh, is there is there a different argument which is to do with public education? I suppose is my question. I think I think there is, and I think it potentially requires a different kind of capacity from the fiscal, or at least it's a different function for the fiscal council, which is that it's not providing it's not providing and regularly updating forecasts of the medium term. But what it's doing is providing projections for the long term. So it's more akin to the long-term fiscal sustainability analysis that we provide once every two years to the government right. and, to the, and to the parliament here in the UK, um, as opposed to our the forecast that we do every every six months. Um, those kind of exercises they're less they're less disaggregated, they're less complicated. They require fewer people. There's a great benefit that you don't do them every year, so you're not kind of constantly you're constantly updating. A really complicated machine, but I think they do help to inform discussions about things like demographic change, demographic pressures on welfare systems, uh, the impact of things like climate change, um, uh, you know, uh, questions around what would make a difference to long-term productivity. Yeah, I, 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 and I suppose what you're, what you're saying is, is those reports are as much about text as table in that they are about framing. Uh, offering narrative and insight as much as saying, look at this table where we're set and write this headline based on this number. They are, and I, and I think, you know, sort of text and tables uh, go best together. And to just give you one example, our own fiscal sustainability analysis, I think one insight that it revealed quite early on in the process around long-term health, health costs is that oftentimes people talk about these things as being demographic. Whereas in reality, the main problem with health health pressures is actually unit costs going up over time, not so much the population aging. The population aging accounts for about a quarter of the total the total rise in health spending in our projections. It's actually escalating unit costs per old person, which is driving much of the rise in health spending over the forecast horizon. And that leads to a different different discussion about long-term health policies because it becomes more about how do you get better efficiency? How do you control cost rather than necessarily what do you do about the popul about the fertility of the population or whether we have enough working people supporting old? Yeah. Okay. Um, and then I, I'll try and close off now, chairing off for others chance to come in. I just wanted to ask about the question of, I suppose, um, uh, the Charter for Budget Responsibility. And so there is a Charter for Budget Responsibility because that's legally required, but it doesn't have a very clear fiscal mandate at the minute, or it doesn't have, it has a, a, an inoperative fiscal mandate. Um, rather than ask about the UK, what, what the what the Treasury is doing, what kind of fiscal mandate do you think would be useful for a devolved uh, executive? Or, or would it, would it be? I mean, so, so one thing I should say is, is the, uh, the, the prohibition on my commenting on policy I'm, I'm certain extends to commenting on policy in, in Northern Ireland. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't dare to suggest to you what you think your, your fiscal rules should be. Um, but I, I think one thing that I think is, is evident from the information that you have available to make fiscal rules is that the kind of fiscal rules you have in for, for the UK as a whole, which depend on knowing what GDP is, yeah. um, and also depend on being measured, being able to measure things like output gaps, um, but you know, the gap between supply and demand and whether you have a structural deficit or whether you have just a cyclical deficit are much, much more complicated to try and calculate for a devolved, for a devolved uh, mm -hmm. country than for, than for a national government. Um, uh, because the, and basically the information to provide those kind of calculations doesn't exist. 
And I think it, it's for that reason that traditionally uh, sub-national governments have had different have, have had have had fiscal rules that are that are simpler and easier to calculate. But I think the other thing which uh, you tend to need at a sub-national level, which you potentially need less of at a national level, is flexibility, because yeah. um, sub-national finances can be a lot more volatile if you haven't got the stabilizing element that comes from the center of government um, of, uh, of things like things like redistribution or equalization funds, of which you know, we have some of in the UK, but, but, but not as many as you see in sort of true fiscal federations elsewhere in the world, where you have big stabilization funds or you know, uh, much, uh, much greater borrowing powers for subnational governments to balance local revenues against local spending because, you know, because they're smaller, local economies are much more volatile than national economies where you can average out you know, areas that are booming versus areas that are, you know, that are struggling economically. Um, you, uh, and all that sort of thing, you, 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 may, you, you may be aware we have a, uh, a fiscal commission in addition to a fiscal council chaired by uh, another um, luminary, uh, um, Paul Johnson. Um, my final question is on, uh, and it is my final question, um, if there was one thing about the OBR's relationship with the Welsh government that you would change and try to improve, what would it be? Uh, I, look, I, I think it's a work in progress, and I, and I think it actually works remarkably, uh, remarkably well. Um, I, I, I mean, one one thing that I think would actually be a benefit to all of us, especially once the Northern Ireland Fiscal Council is set up, is just to have some, I think, more regular and frequent discussions with our with our colleagues in um, uh, in Wales, in Northern Ireland, in Scotland, basically about the state of the macroeconomy, where we think it's going. How it's how it's showing up in in respective budgets, including questions around what's happening to uh, the labour market situation in particular at the moment. I, I mean, once the Northern Ireland Fiscal Council is set up, there's an opportunity for us to basically have a sort of uh, quadrilateral group that we meet with regularly to talk about um, you know, both surveillance issues, but also these kind of coordination and management. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Richard. Thanks, Matthew. Alicia. Uh, from Albert Chair, can you hear me? Yeah, we can. Yeah, Chair, just my apologies to you. I was a bit slow in connecting uh, this afternoon, uh, but I'm sure uh, that you probably received an apology as well from Philip McGuigan. Yeah, we did. Yep. And that's okay. I guess uh, Richard Fajarov. Uh, Richard, you're very welcome here this afternoon. Uh, Richard, uh, you alluded to uh, independence being uh, um, central in many respects. Um, uh, based on that same notion of independence, are you free to uh, publish at your own discretion or do you find that you're directed by government or otherwise? Uh, no, we're, we are free to publish at our own discretion, um, uh, both in terms of uh, the only constraint that we have from government is that obviously because we provide the economic and fiscal forecast to support the government's budget, um, we coordinate with the Treasury to make sure that our economic and fiscal outlook coincides with the publication of the budget. Beyond that, uh, we decide the timetable for publication of our own documents and then all of the content of our of our document, all of our analysis, all the judgments we make in putting it together um, are, are our own. Hello? Hello? Have we frozen? No, I don't no. think so. Hello. Hello, Melissa. We can hear you okay if you want to go ahead. Has he frozen? Uh, yeah, can, can Richard hear me? Yeah, I, yeah, I can hear you just fine. Yeah. 
You can do. Yeah. Uh, Rich, just in relation to your own go uh, governance structures, uh, who's the final say over the uh, appointments not to uh, your body? So th I think this is an important issue, um, and it relates to how to safeguard independence. Uh, so, I, I, uh, so my appointment and, and those of the Budget Responsibility Committee, my two colleagues, are unique in the sense that um, it is the Chancellor who proposes the candidate, but they have to be confirmed by the Treasury Select Committee of Parliament. And, and that, that is, that's a very sort of American-style arrangement where you have sort of confirmation hearings for appoint, officials appointed by the executive um, in the legislature, and, and, and their explicit approbation is required uh, for, the, for the person to get the job. Um, it's, it's, it's not even true for the governor of the Bank of England, um, but I think be, reflecting our dual mandate both to the executive but also to the legislature, um, there is essentially a dual key between the Chancellor and the Treasury Committee of Parliament over the three key appointments um, to the OBR. And I think that, that has been an important guarantor of our independence because it makes sure that um, you know, I'm, I'm not just a creature of the Treasury. And, and I think it was especially important in my case because I'd spent a fair amount of my time working in the Treasury. So it was for me to, to prove and demonstrate and provide Parliament reassurance that um, I, was, I was not just going to be, uh, be the Chancellor's man um, uh, sitting here in the OBR. Uh, well, does the legislation specify like sort of what kind of qualification that that staff uh, would require in order to take up post? And how many of your staff, uh, say, are economists, uh, economists by trade, and uh, how many would come from government or public expenditure backgrounds? Yes, yeah, so, so the legislation doesn't specify any particular qualification. I mean, it says that we have to be qualified to do the job, and that's part of the what both the Chancellor and Parliament need to be satisfied, um, that we have the uh, both the, the background and experience to do the job well, uh, but it doesn't specify that we have to have necessarily a master's degree or a PhD or those those sorts of things. Um, I myself have a master's degree, but not a, not a doctorate. Um, and uh, I think on, on the question of who are the right people to uh, to employ we are in large part an economic and fiscal forecasting outfit and so an, e an economic background is, is important i should emphasize though that we we have uh, you know some people come from generalist backgrounds and they learn skills on the job um i should also say that there it, it is important to have a balance of people who are macroeconomists by training and people who have more public finance type experience and if you look at the three members of the Budget Responsibility Committee, uh, I'm you know, uh, Charlie Bean um, is, a, is, is an eminent macroeconomist with lots of experience, uh, whereas both Andy King and myself, I would say, have more kind of public finance backgrounds than pure macroeconomics backgrounds. And I think having a mix of skills, both at the top of the organization, but also throughout the organization, is important um, that you don't become too much of a kind of economic think tank versus people who have practical experience of of managing tax revenue collection, public expenditure planning, uh, sort of budget policy. Right. Uh, and in terms of uh, the legislation which established uh, OBR, uh, which aspect of that would you think is probably most important for to allow you to fulfil um, uh, as functions? And uh, which of these do you think would it be appropriate, we'll say, for uh, the Fiscal Council for the North of Ireland uh, to copy? I suppose I would say three things. Uh, the issues that you raised around appointment process and 
ensuring dual accountability to the executive and parliament, I think is critical to our independence. Um, I, I think specifying, but only at a very high level, uh, what outputs we're expected to produce. So it says we have to do two economic and fiscal forecasts for the government. It says we produce a handful of other supporting documents, which we have to produce either once a year or once every two years. But it leaves us broad discretion to decide all of the content of those documents consistent with meeting our mandate. And then I think the third thing, which is really important, is access the right of access to information from the government to, to produce those documents. And I think that's what's allowed us to inform decision-making and debate uh, in a way which I didn't think was possible before the OBR was created, because we basically become a conduit for, for getting information out of government and putting it in front of yourselves, putting it in front of pilot, putting it in front of the public, and allowing them to scrutinise in more detail um, what the government is doing with the public lines. Yeah, and you've already stated too that it has a legal right uh, to allow you to access that information. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks very much once again, Richard Gormagas. Thank, thank you. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. Jim. Uh, we we were here last night to have two dealing with alcohol liquor licensing. I, I, I feel like I've spent to have two drinking intoxicating liquor, and I haven't. So most of us are a wee bit under the weather after that experience. But I think we were able to to grasp most of what you're saying, and, and a huge degree of it has been covered already. I'm just trying to tease out the the relationship between yourselves and your counterparts in Scotland and Wales, and how what the relationship's likely to be with ourselves. You say you have a mem memorandum of understanding with the Welsh um, of, of Office of Budget Responsibility or, or, or Fiscal Council. What's your relationship with Scotland? Uh, so our relationships are all different, um, and my guess is we'll have a, a different relationship as well with that in, in Northern Ireland. So I wouldn't necessarily consider any of these as being a sort of copy-paste model that you can you can use uh, for the institution instalment. So because Scotland has its own uh, uh, Scottish Fiscal Commission, which is basically a Scottish OBR, mm -hmm. our relationship is, is basically one of mutual support. Uh, they do their own economic forecasts and they do their own fiscal forecasts for devolved taxes and, and, and welfare. So we essentially compare notes, help, you know, help each other, um, uh, uh, share uh, our respective views on the outlook and, and make sure that our, you know, the key assumptions correspond between what they're planning in Scotland and, and what, what we're planning here in, in the UK. With Wales, it's different because they, Wales doesn't have a fiscal, an independent fiscal uh, watchdog. It is, but our, our memorandum of understanding is with the Welsh government to provide their, their, the, the economic and, and fiscal forecast underpinning the outlook for Welsh taxes and Welsh spending. Um, because Northern Ireland will have its own fiscal council, we'll have to have yet a, yet a different kind of relationship um, in Northern Ireland. And, and I think, as, as was alluded to at the beginning, um, the case for having an independent macroeconomic forecasting uh, function in Northern Ireland, at least at the beginning, before taxes are devolved, is, is weaker than it is in Scotland or even Wales, where you do have devolved taxes. But definitely a role of coordination and discussion around the assumptions that go into producing the fiscal forecast for Northern Ireland, in, in particular for welfare spending, will be important. And then we can also kind of compare notes on uh, forecasts for the for the wider public finances um, and, and anything and anything that has particular sensitivities to to the macroeconomy. So you don't see a role for there being a formal link between Northern Ireland and England or UK in that sense. 
I think I think we would look to once the institution was established, having a similar kind of memorandum of understanding with the Northern Ireland Fiscal Council um, in areas where our responsibilities overlap. And I should say we have a we have a good those things tend to tend to codify what both sides agree is a good working relationship, um, and 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 how we kind of uh, sustain those going forward. And 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 I should also say that. In, in, both with Scotland and my guests will also be in yourselves, mandates evolve over time. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and you have to keep these memoranda up to date. So for example, if in Northern Ireland, the Fiscal Council decides to do some long-term projections, we'll have to think about how we support that process here in the OBR by adapting our long-term long -term forecasts going out 30, 50 years to make sure they're of use and of input to any kind of exercise that you uh, want to do in Northern Ireland. Now, this may be a wee bit left stage, but I think it should ask, should ask you this, that obviously all rectitude has been blown out of the water by coronavirus. All, all the, the sense that we have about budget responsibility has completely disappeared over the last 15 months. Are you doing a job of work um, on that uh, as a body to see <laughs> what on earth has happened? Because Basically, money was thrown at the problem, and maybe quite rightly so, at a phenomenal rate. I am sure that not all the decisions that were made were budgetarily responsible or anything like it. Have you plans to look at that on a UK-wide context, or would you expect each of the devolved administrations to look at that? So you're right that we've seen an unprecedented expansion, in particular in public spending, to combat the pandemic and its economic effects. Um, I would distinguish two different kinds of scrutiny that we've applied to that. Um, uh, you know, well, three different kinds. One is that we've scrutinized the costings of the government's measures to make sure that they're as accurate as we think they could be for spending on things like the furlough scheme, tests and trace, uh, uh, the, uh, vaccines, grants to businesses, to make sure we think that those cost estimates are credible. And we've certified those essentially as the government has made and announced those decisions. Um, a second kind of analysis is about having ramped up all that spending, how realistic are the government's plans for ramping it back down or sort of putting the genie back in the bottle, as it were, once the pandemic is over. And I think uh, the government has set out uh, plans for, uh, for basically scaling back all, all pandemic-related spending uh, by the end of this financial year, so by March of 2022. We have actually raised concerns about the realism of that as an assumption, because it doesn't make any provision, for example, for things like catch-up funding for missed procedures in the NHS. Uh, it, it hasn't made provision for a standing test and trace or revaccination uh, capacity if we keep if we need booster jabs in future. Um, it doesn't make any provision for long-term support for transport, public transport. So we, we have actually highlighted that in our most recent economic and fiscal outlook as being a risk to the government's fiscal plans. And this uh, next month in July, in our fiscal risks report, we're going to be doing a special focus on the on the pandemic and its legacy for the public finances, um, and what kind of medium term and even long term cost pressures might the pandemic leave behind for the government to contend with. That's a second kind of analysis that we've done about basically is the sustainability of the post pandemic path for spending. There's a third kind which we don't provide because it really is the the purview of audit offices, which is to scrutinize the value for money um, of that spending and the kind of bang for your buck that you get out of it. Um, you know, the National Audit Office here is doing a great job on that. Um, we don't see ourselves as being auditors or kind of scrutineers of value for money or efficiency. I mean, this could be this, but this, this is an issue. I know this is an issue for the Northern Ireland Fiscal Commission because that, that has actually been given 
uh, fiscal council because that has actually been put within its mandate. And I think how it interprets that and how it pursues that will be will be a, I think a question for, for debate and discussion on, on your part because that's something which doesn't fall within our remit. And, and to be frank, I, re I wouldn't really want it to because we're not auditors. Um, our, our comparative advantage is not going into the detail and not making value judgments about what was worth spending and what wasn't spending. The NAO does that very well, and I'll be, I'm very happy to leave that. Okay, thank you. Okay, thanks very much, Jim. Pat. Thank you, Chair, and um, thank you, Richard. And my questions will not take very long. Uh, uh, I feel like Jim there as well, you know, but at least, Jim, when you have a drink, you know, you know what brought on the, the bad feeling the next day. But you and I will be tortured in that chamber again, and uh, no pain, no gain, but there we'll go with it. Listen, Richard. Um, I was going to ask you just about uh, to what extent do you think the uh, OBR has improved understanding of government among elected representatives? Uh, I, I'm coming at that question because everything that I do within this committee, it seems to be rushed. I don't really don't think I have the time in order to analyse it or all the, the, the facts that I do have there. So what have you brought to representatives or what can you bring to representatives to give them a better understanding of what it is that's going on within within the government? I, I think it has, uh, and I just maybe emphasise a few things. One is that before the creation of the OBR, I think there was a lot of debate and scepticism on the part of legislators about the realism of the government's economic forecasts and whether they were being deliberately inflated to try and uh, be more optimistic about the outlook for growth, for example. And I think that, that part of the debate, I think, is gone here in the UK. People can criticise us for getting it wrong, but I don't think they can criticise us for being institutionally over-optimistic you know, because we're under pressure to, to do so. Um, I, I think the second thing is that there is a lot more, there is a, a lot more uh, transparency around uh, the detail of government policy, the assumptions underpinning different elements of the forecast, because even if you get the economic forecast right, you can still uh, you, know, you can still get things like the, for the forecast for corporation tax wrong if you're too optimistic about corporate profits. And so a lot more detail about what's underpinning different assumptions um, underpinning the key tax and spending lines in the budgets there. And I think the third thing maybe is through the reports that we do about sustainability and the reports we do around risk, I think bringing greater scrutiny to uh, you know, long-term pressures and also kind of potential shocks and threats to the public finances. If you look at how much detail there is now about the government's loan guarantee scheme, for example, for businesses, you know, we provided that in, in, a, in a lot of detail for people to scrutinize um, in a way in which you know, would essentially be off balance sheets and off budget um, in the old way we do things, we used to do things here in the UK before the OBR was created. Okay. Well, if you, if you look at your, your charter and... Um, it indicates that you must have regard to the policy, and I'm, I'm looking at it for Northern Ireland. So, do you not think that some of those policy decisions that are made by government, that you are in an elevated position to give some much-needed critical advice, but you don't? Yeah, I, I, I think part of maintaining our independence, and I, and I think maintaining our constructive engagement in the process, is to not become a commentator on policy. Um, I, and, I, and I think there are in, in other countries there there have been fiscal councils who are kind of you know councils of wise men and women who provide sage advice to, to, to finance ministers about what to do with fiscal policy. And 
the tendency is for them to become just another voice in the in the fiscal debate and not a particularly privileged one and and i i think in the uk we're not we're not short of smart people talking about where fiscal policy should go um and i think the same is also true in 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 northern ireland i'm not sure adding adding another another voice to that is necessarily going to lead to better policy but what 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 that debate needs is better information and i think that's what a fiscal council can provide is actually a, a more informed debate not necessarily a new voice in the debate okay so well that would be great if we got there but uh, i live on hope on that if you were able to enhance the powers that you do have what enhancement would would you find the office for budget responsibility would choose then I, 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 I'm very happy with that, the powers that we have, and I, I'm certainly not um, eager for eager to engage in mandate creep. I think what, I mean, what we would benefit from, and, I, and I'm sure what you would benefit from in in, in Stormont is uh, greater clarity about timetables and and and, and processes for putting budgets together. Um, this has been a really tough year for everybody. You know, you, you're staying until late in the night. Um, scrutinizing license, licensing laws. I'm, so, I'm sure the same thing happens around finance bills and and, and uh, supply estimates. Um, and that is oftentimes because decisions get taken late about when to bring things to parliament, um, giving parliament limited time to scrutinize that information and decisions being made in a hurry. I think the more that we can provide predictability around the timetable for budget policy making, the better for all, all of us concerned. Yeah, I hear what you say there, and uh, my colleague Jim Wells brought a good point up last night. Just a light heart. We, we in Northern Ireland choose to do both on the one day. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Madness. Madness. So you finished, Pat? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, thank you. And you have, you have had your shower, haven't you, Pat? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, thank you very much. Sorry, I'll get to it. Richard, thank you very much. Th thank you very much indeed for your evidence, and uh, we'll be delighted to keep in touch as as time goes on. And obviously, for us, um, you know, the Office of Budget Responsibilities, in some respects, is a gold standard for which uh, many of us would wish to sort of emulate. And of course, I think the future of the sort of the interrelationship between the OBR and sort of the devolved administrations and the independent fiscal councils, I think, is going to be vital. Uh, just one final thing. Um, Obviously, one of the things we would like to see um, as a finance committee is not just that interrelationship between the independent councils uh, across across the piece, but also that interrelationship between the sort of uh, the fiscal uh, or sort of the, our committees themselves to be able to do that as well. So that's one of the things that we'll be looking at as another sort of role to do it. Because obviously this, the idea of independence and scrutiny and openness and transparency, these are all key to where we're going to as well. But thank you very much indeed for your time and thank you very much indeed for your evidence. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I think we can go ahead then. And then we can go ahead if we've got everybody else. Uh, next item in the agenda team is Oral Evidence Northern Ireland Fiscal Council, Fiscal Council for Northern Ireland. And do we have Sir Robert, uh, Professor Allen, Maureen, and Dr. Bernie available? Excellent. Because I just know that this session is going to go on longer. <laughs> I've got a good guess at that one. Sir Robert, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Thank you. Okay. And uh, hi, everybody else. Yeah, it's, it's like being amongst old friends. Uh, first thing, you should never start a sort of committee meeting, particularly the Finance Committee, with a bit of an apology. But uh, there's less of us here in, in person, as you can imagine. 
and there's a few of us are on Starleaf. Uh, uh, the session uh, yesterday, uh, you'll notice from the media that we went on a bit longer when we were dealing with uh, sort of some of the licensing, new licensing laws in Northern Ireland. So, but we are we are we are ready for your evidence, and we are delighted that you're here and delighted you'll be able to come and talk to us as well. Uh, I know that uh, Esmond, you need to be away, and is it uh, 16:30? You need to be away by. No, a bit earlier than that. Probably about a quarter to four. Okay, a quarter to four. Okay, thanks very much indeed. Forward, uh, please. Uh, team, uh, the clerk's briefing notice at page 157, and the Northern Ireland Fiscal Council briefing paper. It's at page 166. Um, the written ministerial submit statement on the Fiscal Council and Fiscal Commission is at page 174. Uh, Robert, are you going to lead off? Uh, yes. Well, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Chair, um, uh, my apologies for not being with you in person. I had hoped to be so, but I'm afraid that's down to the Test and Trace app, which has left me self-isolating for oh, a few dear. days. Yeah. Um, but uh, So I'm afraid it's from the front bedroom again. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a great pleasure to be uh, appearing before you and, of course, also to be asked to undertake this role, uh, especially in the company of my uh, three distinguished colleagues on the call today. I certainly hope that the Council will be able to work to the benefit of everybody in Northern Ireland and including everybody on the committee by bringing greater transparency to the region's finances. And we certainly see our relationship with this committee as absolutely key to our impact and to uh, our accountability. Um, as you know, I came to this job having spent uh, a decade uh, running the OBR, and you've just been speaking to Richard. Uh, three years of that also chairing the OECD's network of fiscal councils around the world and uh, roughly the same time as a member of the external advisory panel of the Parliamentary Budget Office in the Republic. And one lesson from all of that experience is that there is no one-size-fits-all model for these sorts of institutions, either in terms of their remit or of their structure. Uh, so we need to be humble about that and also to be willing to learn somewhat as we go along. Uh, it may not be a common model, but there is certainly a shared motivating spirit that an increasing transparency of speaking truth as we see it to power and of acting independently and impartially in the face of any political pressure that we might face in this context, be it from the executive, the UK government or even from your good selves. Um, as you know, we've been given some uh, draft terms of reference uh, by the executive uh, based on NDNA, but they're relatively brief. And so we thought the sensible thing to do as we uh, started our work was to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about how exactly to flesh that out and where people see the strengths and weaknesses of, of the management and reporting of public finances at the moment. And we've sent you a summary of, of what we've heard uh, so far. Um, I think that the, the issues that people have consistently raised so far, one is the importance that they place on the council's independence, politically speaking, yeah. uh, both in substance and also in appearance, so that it reassures the public that uh, you're getting professional judgment, not uh, politically motivated uh, output or wishful thinking. Second, that there is a, a real need to educate people, including people who are involved with it, like yourselves on a day-to-day -day working basis, about exactly how the public finances work in Northern Ireland, what are the moving parts and the non-moving parts, and that in some ways is, is equally as important as the particular reports that we've been uh, asked to, uh, to provide under the, the TOR. Third, um, 
we get a sense, obviously, from the people we've spoken to about a lot, obviously, of frustration with the variable and unpredictable timetabling of the uh, of the executive's budget process, which you've already been talking to. And that's, of course, down in no small part to the timetabling of the decisions in London that uh, that determine the uh, the block grant, but also the, uh, the executive's own uh, decision making uh, mechanics. And that clearly complicates the question for us of the most sensible timing at which to produce the reports we've been asked for to, to be most useful to you and others. And that's something that we'll want to reflect on as we hear from more people in the consultation process. Um, I'm sure we'll come in time, you've already been speaking about it, to the importance of underpinning legislation for bodies of this sort. Um, I think, again, looking at the lessons of other countries, that that legislation needs to be clear but not unduly prescriptive about remit. The OBRs run into some difficulty with that when uh, there was a change of heart about exactly what sort of reports should be produced when and disentangling that from the primary legislation. Uh, and, of course, the legislation also needs to safeguard uh, the independence of the institution. That's in particular, as I think you've already discussed, through procedures for appointments and dismissals through the funding of the institution, through rights to information from government and rights to publish. So um, let me leave it, leave, leave it there with that rough summary. I'm absolutely delighted to be in the role. Uh, I've been very grateful and indeed relieved at the warmth of the reception that the, uh, that the council, uh, or the idea of the council has received today. And I hope that we can live up to uh, some, if not all, of the expectations that uh, people have of us. Okay, thanks very much indeed. Robert, just a couple of ones and I'll, I'll sort of kick off. And thank you very much indeed for your report. And it's very comprehensive. But I think it'll be safe to say that there's not a lot in that, in that that surprises any of us. Uh, what we particularly wanted and, you know, that's what we do. First question is what sort of, an, and I've, you know, and I've already sort of uh, tackled the finance minister about this on the floor of the house. You know, what sort of engagement have you had already with the finance department and the finance minister, because obviously we're looking into sort of the last year of the mandate. We've gone through the numerous budget recycles and all the other differences we have at the moment and sort of the estimates and the sort of the various forecasting, you know, what sort of engagement have you had already? Um, sure. Um, my apologies, about you're cutting in and out slightly on sound. So if I miss here, if I miss here, my apologies to you. And the engagement so far has been very much around the mechanics of setting up uh, the institution. So obviously I had some initial discussion uh, with the department, uh, with the minister, with the then permanent secretary uh, and officials uh, before accepting the job to, to, to talk to them about uh, what they were looking for in the, in the institution. And um, I, we covered then many of the issues that I suspect we will cover today about the importance of, of legislation and uh, access to information, uh, etc. Since then, obviously, the, there has been the practical issues of ensuring that we have some people to, to do work for us. So, again, uh, we're in sort of early days phase. None of this is underpinned by legislation yet, but we were, you know, we had a discussion about um, chief of staff, some other uh, staff. Uh, to begin uh, working with us, um, uh, also a communications issue, getting down to sort of preparing Robert, websites and the just, like. Just a quick one. Um, uh, are you having any pushback on that, or are people being fairly open? Uh, no, uh, none whatsoever so far. Uh, the department been, has been very keen uh, and uh, hasn't pushed back on anything we've asked for. We're just starting to get underway with discussion 
with them about what a memorandum of understanding between the Fiscal Council and the Department of Finance might look like, and that will then also, as in the case in the UK, essentially provide in slightly boiled down form, presumably a template for a memorandum of understanding with other departments. And the very early draft of that I've had look like as, uh, is, is commendably good and not ringing any particular uh, alarm bells uh, for me. Uh, so, so that is good news. Um, needless to say, you know, the test will be when we start to ask for more information uh, over time. And the, that access to, if, if there are two things that my counterparts in other fiscal councils have uh, worried about or complained about most over the 10 years I was involved with them, it was the funding of the institution. And of course, every public body worries about adequate funding. And the second thing is, is access to information. And a legal right of access to information is very important. It's one of the, uh, the, the OECD principles to which I hope this institution and, the, and I know that the, the Department of Finance is, is committed to this institution and this framework matching those principles as, as far as is possible. But you also need political commitment to provide that and you also need the departments to have the resources to be able to provide you with the information that you asked for with the timeliness, quality, detail that you ask for, and to be able to help you with the questions you have about it. And uh, uh, nothing I've heard so far leads me to worry about that, but uh, you know, it, it's not lost on me that when other, when other institutions get into uh, difficulty with their governments, it's often over, over those issues. Yeah, because I mean, we've, got a, we've got going through legislation at the moment, we've got a, a financial reporting bill that is to bring the various departments into alignment and how they make their financial reports. But we're asking questions here, even here as a committee, does it include the whole gamut of Northern Ireland government expenditure? Does it refer to arm's length bodies? And one of the things we've had coming back in evidence as well is, um, and I note very clearly your point about education and how many people need to be educated about the budgetary process, but I'm beginning to think that one of the first pieces of education that needs to go through is within the civil service itself. And there is a real lack of coherence, I think, across the piece on how reporting and reporting standards are there. So, uh, you know, I, I'm beginning to have concerns that, you know, we're trying to put through a piece of legislation for something that should be sort of standing operating procedure for the various departments. So, uh, again, with the memorandum of understanding, is there a question if it's just to be you know, should it just be with the Department of Finance or should it be with the Executive Office itself because of this rather sort of mandatory um, mandatory coalition process that we have in well, Northern Ireland? Uh, I mean, the, the model that was adopted with the OBR is the OBR has a memorandum of understanding with those departments that it has the greatest interaction with, which are essentially uh, the Treasury, Revenue and Customs and the Department for Work and Pensions. And then other departments are encouraged to observe the same principles uh, underpinning it. And uh, so I think the issue here is that it's perfectly sensible to start off with an MOU with the, uh, with the Department of Finance. And then I think an interesting question will be whether you can sort of book, you know, take away the Department of Finance specific bits of that and have something that is, that's concrete for, for other departments. Um, again, I mean, a memorandum of understanding Lots of fiscal councils have these with governments and they're important and useful. 
what we ended up doing with the OBR is that even, you know, once you've, you've tested it out and you see how things work in practice, is actually boiling down the key sets of expectations on both sides of the relationship into a page or so, uh, not least because people turn over in government departments, people move jobs, and in the UK context, some of them come in with an instinctive reluctance to share information and just need to, you know, have a simple guide to, well, you know, let's not waste some time with you pushing back on this because we're entitled to this and we always get this. And so uh, as much of it is about sort of embedding that sense of, of, of relationship and the good working relationship uh, rather than, you know, once you, if you really get down to dispute mechanisms over whether section 1.4B is or is not being fully observed, you've kind of lost the battle already. Um, the other thing is, look, you know, uh, this, uh, this week I've already pushed the Minister for Finance on when's the legislative framework going to come through and putting this on a statutory uh, footing. And sort of the evidence that we've already received, one of the key things that comes out of it, and also indeed from your briefing note as well, getting ourselves onto a statutory framework as, as quickly as we can. And because of Northern Ireland's, I hate using the word unique circumstances, but uh, within the Northern Ireland context, what we want to see is openness and transparency as quickly as possible. So uh, the question is, you know, how quickly do we need to get this onto a statutory basis? Now, my answer, my, 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 my perspective was, would be, and I'll be quite honest about this, as soon as humanly possible to make that happen. But again, we've got, we're within a tight legislative framework, but it, I think it's something that's fundamental. And the key to this is the question of trust and you know the reason why we're pushing for we've always been pushing for an independent fiscal council is the idea of this development of trust and openness and transparency to sort of break through these these principles so you know when would you particularly like to see this on a statutory framework uh, well in the, in the case of the obr the the obr was put on a statutory basis within a year or so of it being set up i mean we were set up in may 2010 I took over as chair in October 2010. The legislation, I think, started making its way. It started in the House of Lords um, uh, and uh, probably late autumn and finally royal assent in, uh, in April. Uh, and obviously how quickly it gets through depends on how much people want to debate the substance of it. Um, the, the main area in which people you know, were debating in both the Lords and the Commons was around the independence and around, for example, whether the Charter for Budget Responsibility gave the government uh, too great powers to interfere with the independence. And so the legislation was tweaked to remove that, to remove that suspicion. Uh, clearly, it would be desirable, obviously, to, you know, to have it done uh, this side of the, of the mandate before you get, you know, things snarled up there. Obviously, I'd rather it was right than that it was super quick. Uh, but, um, you know, there are other models out there and hopefully um, one could make progress on that relatively, uh, relatively uh, swiftly. There are other models to look at and the OECD principles, importantly, to draw upon. So hopefully there shouldn't be much blue skies thinking required about the principles behind it. Obviously, there are particular issues about, you know, how you how you tailor it to the, to the uh, idiosyncrasies of the Northern Ireland legislative process, if I might put it that way. Okay, thanks. Matthew? 
Uh, thank you, Chair, and thank you um, to Robert and everyone else for coming, uh, Maureen, Esmond, uh, and Alan. Um, um, I, I, as I said, um, on behalf of my party, to all of you in different contexts, we're, we're um, really welcome the appointment of the Fiscal Council and all of your um, appointments to it. Um, we think it's a very positive innovation um, and one that we hope to shape and, and, uh, and in, in a constructive way. So I just, I just had a few questions, not, not necessarily aimed at anyone in particular, but I suppose my um, my first question is around the NDNA was um, not exactly a sacred text in terms. Of, it hasn't really been a sacred text in terms of its delivery, but it wasn't exactly poured over. I think in terms of what was agreed in, in language terms. I, I say that because um, the, the, the as you say the the two overarching the two specific requirements. Uh, placed on the Fiscal Council, um, or the, sorry, the, in the terms of reference, what you draw from New Dick and your approach um, is, uh, are, are two, two broad requirements. One of them is about uh, uh, examining revenue streams and spending proposals, is of course, but it finishes with the statement that, uh, that that's enabled to, uh, to, uh, to, to and high, high revenue streams and spending proposals uh, allow the executive to balance their budget. I'm just interested in people's views on the phrase balancing a budget in the context of Northern Ireland's uh, Ireland funds itself and is funded. Is it a, uh, I mean, this is a, a genuinely open question. Is it useful to talk about a balanced budget in, 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 the con in Northern Ireland's context where obviously most of the funding comes by the block grant and certainly recently there have been many, many uh, moments of in year reprioritization, in year monitoring, uh, and uh, further in year bond consequential throughout the year, and um, is a is a balanced budget really meaningful as a concept in that context? Well, maybe I should say something brief and then ask ask colleagues to to pitch in. I think certainly in in the in the context of the relatively limited borrowing powers that the executive has, then. Then the, the, then the reference to balancing the budget makes sense there in a way in which in the UK context, this would be you know, much more ambiguous in the context of whatever set of fiscal rules you had yeah. uh, around how big the budget deficit should be, you know, what your objective for the medium term path of debt and the deficit would be. You've not got that same freedom. And therefore, as I think you were discussing with Richard earlier, that the same uh, either need for or presence of fiscal rules to sort of guide people as to how that's going to be managed. And it is much more a question of how are you allocating Dell spending within the envelope that is implied very, very largely by uh, the, uh, the block grant with some additional top-ups to that and the relatively modest contribution from, uh, from rates. Uh, the borrowing powers, you know, are pretty limited by the, the standards of the other vote. So in that sense, balanced budget doesn't seem to be an unreasonable um, framing of the of the constraints within which the executive is having to operate by and large. I don't know whether um, Esmond or Maureen would like to chip in on that. Um, thanks. All, all, all I would add, I uh, agree with what uh, Robert said there, is yes, clearly this is different from the 
the balancing budget and the fiscal frameworks of the Republic of Ireland government, the UK government, etc. We are a region relying largely, not entirely, largely block grant. But I suppose it is useful to consider as far as we can, what are the pressures, even in the short run, uh, pressures to spend and compare that to the actual amounts of money which are available to spend. Of course, those sorts of considerations then become even more, um, in a sense, apparent um, when you come to the second uh, point in the terms of reference about long-run sustainability. But, uh, thanks. Okay. I don't know if anyone else has got that. Okay. Thank you. That, that, that's really helpful. And uh, just on... Um, on the point uh, to follow on, we, we talked a little bit in our session with um, Richard Hughes about the um, Charter for Budget Responsibility. Obviously, um, something Robert, you're the the the, the world expert on, um, and uh, and the fiscal mandate that, that has been that's contained within that, the fiscal rules. And um, is it? We talked about and this is back to the question about whether balancing as much is a, is a useful phrase. Are, are you? Would it be useful to construct something that approaches uh, a fiscal rule or a balanced budget rule uh, that it, it acts as an overarching test on the executive? And, and, and what might that look like? Um, I, I think it's quite hard to draw the parallel. I mean, the fiscal rules in the, uh, in the national government context are quite often about where, where do you want the public finances to be in the medium term? You're sending people a, a signal about getting from typically a situation in which you're starting with a budget deficit and you may be worried about the overall budget deficit. You may be worried about the budget deficit on current spending. You may be worried about the profile of, of the debt to GDP ratio and essentially what is a good place to get to and over what time horizon should you aim uh, to get there. Uh, and, you know, this process doesn't always work very the, the UK government in the period that I was running the OBR got through a good many fiscal rules, uh, which, uh, f you know, failed either because of uh, economic and fiscal shocks that came along or because of changes in political preferences. So the degree to which, for example, financial market investors were, you know, would now be particularly impressed by whatever the next set of fiscal rules that comes along is as a meaningful anchor to expectations of where the public finances go to, I think is debatable. I think they are useful in the, uh, in the, in the UK and national context in part as a, as a way of the government signalling what it thinks prudent and good management of the public finances looked like. But in the Northern Ireland context, I think that the, you know, the constraints are such and the, the necessary short-termism that is imposed on that uh, doesn't make that particularly helpful. Uh, the, the medium-term question is more around the sustainability issue, which is, you know, are there long-term spending pressures in particular? Are there spending pressures in Northern Ireland that would move, quote-unquote, needs differently from the way in which they would move in the rest of the UK and therefore in what Northern Ireland would get as a consequence of the operation of the Barnett formula and the block grant anyway. And then also questions around, you know, 
is the UK government going to be uh, going on a programme of retrenchment which would, which would change the outlook, again, for the block grant on that side? There are also issues around welfare and around revenue and spending. But the idea of putting rules around the overall magnitude of spending and, and receipts when essentially you're, you're requiring a, a balanced budget in the shortish term with only relatively limited wiggle room uh, on the borrowing side for cash flow management, I, I think is, uh, is not obvious. Okay. And, and I mean, which I guess goes back to the, to, to the, to the, to the point about um, this being a, um, a, a fiscal council that is mostly examining um, how the executive performs within a relatively, uh, the, 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 the relatively narrow cast kind of um, uh, way in which it, it both receives um, funding, i.e., as you've mentioned, via its fairly narrow areas of revenue raising and, and, and the block grant. Um, uh, but do you think that, I'm going to come on and ask you a broader question for the Fiscal Commission, but given that the Fiscal Commission, there is going to be a Fiscal Commission, uh, there is a Fiscal Commission which is now um, uh, operational and starting tentative consult consultation, we are a very long way from there being any change to, for example, um, the executive's borrowing powers or, or, or its revenue raising powers, but uh, given that is, I suppose, a more live possibility because there is a fiscal commission. Do you think you need to build in, um, uh, if you like, headroom, in, in, or should we be thinking about building in headroom in your legislation to allow for you to have a more expansive role? Should that become necessary? Um, I would have thought. I mean, it's certainly obviously the role that the council will have to to fulfil in steady state is going to depend in part on what the Commission recommends and whether the Executive and the Assembly wish to uh, wish to proceed with that. So um, you can either put the room for manoeuvre in the legislation at the start-up phase, or if there is going to have to be other legislation in order to implement greater devolution, then you could do it at, at that point. But you clearly want to end up in a position where the legislation is commensurate with the task that you're expecting the institution to uh, fulfil. Um, I mean, you, you are right that, coming back to your earlier point, that, you know, we're, we're not in the same medium-term forecasting and therefore using forecasts to assess consistency with medium-term fiscal management in the sense of how big should the budget deficit be, where is the debt going, etc. But the importance of the scrutiny of both near-term and sustainability is still very important, and particularly perhaps in the, in the near-term uh, report. Un quite understandably, the, the Department of Finance's budget documents are very much focusing on the budget as a process of allocating DEL. Um, the Fiscal Council, I think, will have an important role in putting that into the broader picture of the fact that it's not just DEL spending that, that, that matters in Northern Ireland. There is AMI as well, and AMI is a lot less looked at, both in terms of you know, where it's being spent in, in welfare and elsewhere and, and quite how the funding mechanism works for that. And then on the income side, you're obviously, you know, there's a role in explaining to people how the block grant, how the block grant works, how the AMI grant works, how important are the, uh, the periodic, non-recurrent, non-barneted additional in, uh, sources of money from uh, from the UK government, the rates, income, etc. So I think putting a 
a sort of budget presentation that is understandably very focused on the allocation of Dell into that mm. broader revenue and yeah. um, uh, spending picture is important. I don't know whether Alan would have any sense from the from the the, the Republican the uh, you know the, the the way in which the budget process works there as to whether that's a that fits with that direction. Yeah, no, I, I'd agree with all the points. I suppose that just the ones I, I, I would add, and this is around, uh, Matthew, partly your, 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 the earlier questions about the, the interpretation of the, of the phrase balance. Uh, but I think the words that have come up in our deliberations have included things like prioritization and trade-offs. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, it is, I suppose, it, it, it's a slightly maybe different take on, on, on the word balance. But I think we've discussed uh, what balancing a budget means in a sort of a standard national uh, sort of context, or at least with a, even a subnational context with significant tax raising powers. This is a little bit different. Uh, but nevertheless, I think one of the things that has come up in the consultations is this sense that um, you know the issues of trade-off are, are, are probably not uh, as explicit uh, as they might be. And uh, I, again, I think in one of the discussions, I, I sort of drew a parallel uh, with the administration of public finances in, in the Republic of Ireland. So in the days when we were getting a lot of EU spending, uh, there was a sense that the EU money coming into Ireland was a bit like the Brock Grant, um, you know, coming uh, th that comes from Westminster to Northern Ireland. It was this, you know grant type money, uh, and then of course, Ireland, obviously here we were we were raising our own revenues through taxation. But often there was a sort of a schizophrenia in in the discussion around these sort of things that there was agonising over the allocation of the money we raised through taxation, but less agonising it seemed around some of the block grant money that was coming from Brussels. It was almost like free money or something like that so we've, we've been teasing through some of these issues and trying to get to a situation where the, the, the allocations will be looked at more forensically and that the, you know we the fiscal council will then hopefully play a role in not making policy prescriptions about what should be happening we're trying to illuminate as i said yeah. the, the sort of trade-offs that are implicit that's really helpful thank you i think the the point about illumination is, is well understood and if i'm kind of understanding i can sort of is it fair to describe the way you seem to be seeing the two broad products or two broad thematic work streams as one offering a um, a, a near-term presentation, which is effectively an annual budget presentation to allow the assembly and hopefully the public to understand how the annual budget process is working and then a, what is effectively a version of the fiscal sustainability report with the caveat, obviously, Robert, that it's not really a fiscal sustainability report because we don't we're not a sovereign state with with uh with uh wide-ranging tax varying powers on our own uh debt um yeah i think i think that's broadly right i think we do need to to suck it and see somewhat and 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 give these things a try and then look at them and see how uh you know how useful people find them but i think that sort of distinction on the sustainability you see many of the same sorts of themes that come up with the fiscal sustainability report in the uh, in the uh, in the UK context, so around, I mean, uh, you might expect that that report we probably do an overview and then pick on a on a specific special topic in a in a particular report. And health would obviously stand out as a very obviously early one because of some of the natures of the of the medium to long term pressures and because of its relative importance in the in the executive's uh, Dell budget. Uh, I think it's always been clearer to most of the people that we've spoken to of what that what those sorts of sustainability issues are as distinct from where we can best add value on the, on the more short-term reviewing of the, of, yeah. the, 
of the budget process. So, but I think your your broad idea of you know it's a report probably on what we see in the draft budget and trying to, as Alan said, tease out and illuminate some of the choices that have made there to put the Dell numbers and rates into a broader context of the of the, of the bigger spending. Uh, revenue uh, picture and, uh, and Esmond said as to, to tina, tease out some of the pressures in the near term as well as the long term. And the aim, I think, as we've said, with, with, with both of those is that we would precede it, hopefully, with some sort of first publication as a sort of guide to the way in which the Northern Ireland public finances operate, which we can then, as it were, you know, piggyback off that and use that as a, as a foundation from which the other reports can, can follow and then be repeated and then be, you know, uh, revised over time. Okay. Robert when, Robert, when can we expect the dummy guide to Northern Ireland public finances then? Um, I, it, well, that will depend on a bit on resources and how we proceed with the, uh, with the um, uh, stakeholder engagement process, but hopefully over the summer uh, or earliest to everybody comes back from summer halls if we can. Yeah, okay. Thanks. Sir, Pat? Uh, thank you. Um, thanks um, uh, to, to, to Sir Robert there and to Professor Allen and Dr. Esmond and Maureen as well. Thanks very much. I'm so excited right, that we have this and it's moving forward as it is. I think from my point of view, coming uh, from a business background, the questions that, that, that I wanted to know is, I wanted to be part of the, uh, of the, of the finance committee to be able to try to bring our recommendations probably through to government. Everything seems to be rushed. I've said this before. I mean, I think it was five budgets or something. I don't know how many of them have been speeded up for accelerated passage. And the information seems to move so fast that it's very difficult in order to try to keep ahead of it. Whenever you suggest the legislation could support the Fiscal Council's independence, in respect of, I'm looking at, at all of your appointments, but in for ways, whenever your report does come out, just to be able to challenge uh, those figures and be able to put our own twist on it as well. Um, I think, well, certainly the aim, obviously, will when we are producing analysis, is to, is to explain, is to show our working uh, in the sort of exam basis. So if you are producing that sort of analysis to say where have the numbers come from, what are the assumptions that are underpinning them, so that people can, can look at that, can make use of it, but also if they take a different set of uh, assumptions uh, or have different views, that they can see how important that would be to the conclusions that, uh, that you've reached. I think the, the question of, you know, how much time would there be to consider and ponder the stuff that we produce is obviously as it's part of the broader issue you've read you have raised about both the unpredictability and the occasionally quite often squeezed nature of the budget consideration process so and obviously what we can do with a with a draft budget will have to depend in part on what the gap between the draft and the final budget uh, looks like and whether it's going to be more useful for you to provide something, you know, smaller and quicker because that's what the timetable is demanding rather than, than something large. We'll have to see how that, that uh, operates in, uh, uh, in practice. But it's not obviously our job to be coming up with policy recommendations. We may have things to say about process, etc. Uh, but hopefully it's, it's raw material that can inform you and can inform public debates more, more broadly. I don't know... 
that's that's really what I'm after because yes, and, and I do want to come up with with, with 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 our own ideas, but in order to do that, we need to have that information at our disposal as well. So I really look forward to your report, and hopefully, it comes sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well done. Well, and thank you for expressing your excitement. That's rarely a word I hear in this. Country. Listen, Sir Robert. You want to be on this? You want to be on this finance committee? I can tell you, anything that gives a bit of information to me is great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The phrase "you want to be on this finance committee" is not one I'd heard yet. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you might have heard the theme that we just want a bit more openness and transparency many times, Robert. Already. But that's all I want, sure. Okay. Thanks. Cheers, Malisha, please. Uh, Chair, thank you, Chair and Patrick Overleg. You're all very welcome to on the show this afternoon. Uh, and um, another wee statement, just in a sense, like we don't have, I know Turkey's voting for Christmas, but do we really need a fiscal council given uh, our current um, uh, lack of control that we might have over our budget here in the north of Ireland? Well, as I say, I, I mean, I've, I've looked and I've, I've worked with people running fiscal councils uh, in very different, you know, different countries, different political systems, etc. Uh, there is no, as I say, one size fits all model. Uh, their role depends to a considerable degree on where uh, power resides in the budget setting process, whether there are other institutions of an informal nature that are already in this space, how important supranational supervision, uh, supervision of the public finances is. But in almost every case, the, I think the biggest contribution that these institutions bring is greater transparency and you know, a willingness and a determination to shine light into the darker corners. Sometimes things are not being hidden malignly, it's just they're quite complicated and uh, glossed over. And uh, even if you don't have a formal role in the process of setting the block grant, uh, as the OBR's numbers feed into the setting of the Scottish block grant, uh, that wouldn't be the case here. But, that's, but simply, the number of people we've spoken so far who've just said, as a very start, just having some, you know, explanations, some material for people to explain exactly how all of this fits together. Um, and while some of the particular challenges are around sort of being able to tell a story of what's going on over time, because do you have consistent numbers that mean that when you compare this year with last year and the year before, are you comparing, you know, apples, apples and apples or apples, oranges and bananas? Uh, I think that there's, there's a lot that can be done just in sort of giving people a better information set uh, and, a, and a greater trust in the fact that, that these things are being looked at, even if you're not going to be as deeply embedded in the policy formation process as the OBR and some other institutions of this sort are. Yeah. Well, uh, given just that uh, in terms of, say, governance structure, and this is something that I alluded to in the previous interview we had, um, uh, what, in fact, uh, structures should we have in place, say, for the Fiscal Council? Well, I think in terms of the, of the legislation, uh, and again, if you look at the, at the OECD standards, the, the first thing is you do want this thing to be, to be set up in legislation, not just to be existing as a sort of yeah. floating advice, departmental advisory body. It's perfectly reasonable for it to be of that form to start with, and while it's bedding itself in and 
and, and learning the ropes and, and you're designing that legislation. But um, the sorts of things that matter in that legislation are the processes for hiring and firing the key decision makers uh, and the political the assurance of political independence that that can provide. Funding. Uh, obviously, you're not going to, in legislation, set down how big the institution should be, but you want to have the institution's funding set in a way that is transparent, set over some years in advance, so that if there is, if the government were to decide to squeeze the institution, as happened spectacularly in Hungary, to a lesser degree in Canada, arguably in Sweden, that it is visible and transparent and there can be no debate about that, about the fact that that is what is going on. Then the other element, one we've already discussed, which has been the right of inf to information from within government, the information you need to do the job. In, in some cases, you know, though those legal rights are used in anger, uh, in Canada uh, and I think in Spain as well, the fiscal council has taken the government to court for the information that it required. That's very extreme and, you know, is a sign of, of, of relationship failure if you get to that point. But it's, it's important to have it there as a baseline. And then the ability to, to publish, um, you know, within the remit that you have been given without... Uh, being censored or uh, interfered with by by the government. So those are the sorts of things that you want to have in any uh, set of legislation and, as, uh, and the remit to be defined clearly, but not unduly prescriptively. So there needs to be the flexibility for knowing that you might not have got right exactly what the two reports a year should really focus on. And so if you stick it in primary legislation, uh, are you just making a rod for your own back? So, so that balance between uh, a clearly defined job to do, but not, you know, writing some long description of exactly what every document ought to look like, and then stuffing that into legislation. And do you see this candidates having any role there in terms of uh, appointments in the likes of two? Well, as you've already discussed with uh, with Richard, the Treasury Select Committee in Westminster has veto power over the appointment and the removal of the members of the of the OBR Budget Responsibility Committee, which are the, effectively the council members. That was on you. That, as Richard said, it is unusual. Uh, it's 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 occurred in a couple of other areas, but it's much more a US style phenomenon. I don't know whether there are constitutional bars to your committee having the same powers in a Northern Ireland context. Personally, I wouldn't have any objection if you if you did have those equivalent powers. I think it's worked fine uh, for the uh, for the uh, uh, OBR. In some other countries, the, the the appointments have to be approved by a vote of the whole legislature. Uh, in some cases, there are sort of committees of great and the good that are then then appoint people. So there are different models for this, but uh, the relationship with the committee is an important one, and, and the and the appointment one in the UK context, I think, has been helpful to the OBR. Thank you ever so much. That's very clarifying. Many respects. Thank you. Thank you very Jim, Jim Allister. Yeah, thank you. It's good to see you, folk, again. Uh, I've had the opportunity to talk to you about a number of these issues, so I just want to focus on a couple of matters. In regard to the access to information, 
Uh, obviously, you underscore that the importance of that being prescribed and um, enforceable. That would clearly be with the local devolved uh, departments. But would you anticipate having the right of access to information, for example, from the Treasury? Um, if there is legislation established in the in the Assembly, I don't think that the Assembly That's can right. force the Treasury to provide us with the information. What's happened in the Scottish context, if I remember correctly, is that uh, when the devolution of tax and spending powers was put into legislation and then it was first in 2012 and then in, in the 2016 Act, I think in the 2016 Act, the OBR was given right of access to information from the Scottish Government and the Scottish Fiscal Commission was given right of information from the UK Government. So I suspect that, formally speaking, you as MLAs can't force the Treasury to provide that, but if, there, if the Commission comes up with something that requires a, uh, a legislated fiscal framework in both Westminster and in Belfast, then that would be an opportunity, or that is, the, that is the opportunity at which those rights have been put into place in elsewhere. Yeah, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. The Assembly would have no powers to access or, or to give you access powers to the Treasury. So it may take an aspect of dual legislation to actually equip you with that, because I think that's important, because very often in our budgetary discussions in Northern Ireland, we get into a lot of past the parcel between the local department and the Treasury, and or maybe it's blame passing. And certainly if I was on a fiscal council uh, trying to explore some of those issues, I would want to have the power to go to the source in respect of both to see what the truth is. And I think you would be considerably inhibited if you didn't have a directory or through OBR, perhaps, the powers to access information from the Treasury. Um, that's true. I think the, I mean, two points there. One, obviously, as you say, there's also the relationship with the OBR, where, um, uh, for, obvious, uh, for obvious reasons, I would hope and expect that we will have a good relationship with them. And I've certainly already indicated that um, the more we can know about the Northern Ireland specific bits of the OBR's UK um, uh, public finance forecasts, the better. Uh, we almost published, I think, it, I'm not sure it got to the final version of one of the welfare trend reports, a Northern Ireland specific five-year welfare spending forecast. Uh, hopefully it would be possible to, to extract that from the numbers that are already there. We'll need to talk to them about that. The other point to bear in mind, particularly with relations with, with, with governments, is that you say the, it's important to have the legislation there, but you know, your first port of call is not to go to the courts. Your first port of call is to go to the court of public opinion, to go to uh, committees, I mean, uh, both here uh, and at Westminster, to go to uh, the media and say, to do our job properly, we need this information and we're not being provided with it. But, that, but the ultimate you need the right of legislation. you get to, to, to uh, summoning the lawyers, uh, although... You know, that, that's, a, that's a very rare outcome in, in the operation of these institutions. Yes, but it's, it's, it's by the very existence of the ultimate power to be able to go 
uh, to statutory enforcement that very often you don't have to go there because the power exists and people know you can have recourse to it. So, so I'm worried about that grey or blank area in terms of a Northern Ireland Fiscal Council and the Treasury. And I think that needs to be properly uh, assessed and, and uh, attended to. Well, the, the other thing, of course, you can do short of legislation is a memorandum of understanding. Yes. It wouldn't have that same force, but again, takes the form of an agreement to which you can then say publicly, mm. you know, they had said that they would be willing to provide this and haven't done so. There's no legal recourse, but uh, it's, it's a powerful tool nonetheless. Yeah. Um, I still struggle somewhat to understand in circumstances where our finances are based on a Northern Ireland grant, uh, what really you're going to find to do, because it's not a question of balancing budgets or anything else in that regard. So I do think within your ambit, something I was raising with um, the previous contributor, there is perhaps useful work to be done on something like the excessive spend on welfare in Northern Ireland, or £5 billion a year spend. And have we got proper anti-fraud provisions within that? I think that's something that a fiscal council could usefully explore. Would that, would that be within your ambit, as you'd see it? Um, it's not clear that would fall within the, the remit, formally speaking, and, in, and the idea that we would have the expertise to be able to judge uh, the level of, of fraud and error uh, in the welfare system. I mean, that in the UK context is something that the Department for Work and Pensions estimates that the National Audit Office looks at and not something that the OBR would take a, uh, a bottom-up primary view at. What it would do, in the, in, in, as Richard was, was saying, is if the government announces new policies or if it says we're going to spend X amount more people dealing with this particular aspect of fraud and error, you ask the question, well, are you taking them out away from somewhere else that's going to mean that the fraud and error just pops up in a different place? You can ask those sorts of questions. You can also probe as best you can whether uh, the, the departments and the audit office are finding different rates of fraud and error in different places. So are there particular, you know, is there an empirical basis to believe that a higher number of pence per pound is lost uh, through fraud and error in one part of country uh, versus the other. How robust those numbers would be, given that it's, you know, it's, by its nature, fraud and error is hard to quantify with huge precision remains to be seen. So, you know, it's not that sort of forensic auditing function. We wouldn't be resourced in either skill or number of people for that. But there are ways in which you can shine light on that and to encourage uh, people to bring you evidence uh, in those sorts of areas. And well, we do, we do know that welfare spend per capita is much higher in Northern Ireland. We do know that as a starting point. Yes, and obviously that's partly reflecting employment rates, relative uh, wage rates, uh, different age, younger age structure, etc. So there are a variety of, of explanations for the differential um, welfare uh, bills uh, and, and differential fraud and error could be one of them. So if you had the power to do own initiative reports and giving the straitjacket that relates to our fiscal situation, what would you anticipate doing such reports on? Well, I, we'd need to look at this over time and see what, what the demands were. I think 
you know, an obvious area, and this comes under the, the sustainability report umbrella, uh, is, is health, given the proportion of, of uh, executive Dell spending that accounts for and the nature, as Richard was describing to you, of both demographic and non-demographic uh, pressures there. So um, I would have thought that when we get to the first sustainability report, a very strong contender for the first special topic or special report that within that would be health spending. And what are you looking for there? Um, explana oh, um, an explanation of why the level of spending is what it, where it is at the moment. What uh, uh, is the allocation of it looking different to other parts of the UK? Why might that be? Are there particular reasons to believe that the pressures over time are likely to be more or less powerful? I mean, that matters in particularly... Uh, under the, the executive funding process, because obviously, there, I mean, there are upward pressures on health spending everywhere. There are upward pressures on health spending in England and Wales, which are frequently acceded to. And you see additional money put into the UK health budget, and we may see more of that uh, later this year. Now, that then obviously feeds through to the Barnet's adjustment to the block grant. But so a particular area of interest would be, are there reasons to believe that those pressures are of a different nature or a different speed uh, in uh, Northern Ireland from where they are in the rest of the UK, and given that that's the one that's likely to drive the uh, the um, uh, the block grant decisions. But I don't know whether whether Maureen or 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 anyone else would like to add on that. Yeah, apologies. I, I was couldn't get on there for a while. I could hear you, but I couldn't. I couldn't say anything. So, you know, just to reiterate that, um, you know, the health one is the obvious one. Also, probably education. But the point of the fiscal council would be just to demonstrate, you know, where the money is spent, and I think that will tell a big part of the story in itself. You know, so that that's kind of the basis and the starting point. And I know just from obviously the consultation so far, that's um, that's where um, kind of the emphasis is being put political parties in the wider consultation process as well. But as, as Robin says, those issues will emerge you know, over time in terms of sustainability piece. And obviously there are issues in behind that around the aging, aging population, you know, um, the, the different demands depending on, on what scenarios we look, look, look at. So um, so that will that will come over time. But you know, the initial focus is obviously I'm just trying to explain how things are at the moment. So, so Robert, would... Um Looking for and assessing the success in obtaining efficiencies in government, would that be a part of your interest? Uh, that's one of the areas that we've that's 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 framed relatively vaguely in the in the brief mm. that we've been uh, uh, given. Um, as you see from the uh, from the response letter that we sent through to you, uh, we asked people to say, you know, which are the long-term efficiency programs that you think we ought to focus on most? And there was a sort of generalised silence as people were trying to think of the ones that they would point us to in that in that direction, as arms-length bodies, uh, etc. Um, which which uh, might be suggestive. There's not a great appetite or thought when you live in a scenario of block grant funding. I'll, I will leave you to draw that conclusion. You're, you're, you are not, not the first person to have said that in the, in the responses to us. But I take it your council wouldn't be shy about saying that sort of thing, if that's what you find? 
we won't be shy about saying uh, anything that we that we found. We we you know we are not a a policy recommending body. Uh, that won't prevent us on occasion, for example, I think particularly around around process of saying where we think there are obvious ways that can be improved on that. Uh, it's not for us to make the judgment as to whether, you know, too much or too little is spent on uh, a particular area. That's ultimately a political choice. If there's clear evidence that we can point to that says that a particular category of spending is delivering much weaker results in one part of the country than elsewhere, uh, and we can see probably from the work of other people that there are explanations for why that might be then shedding light on that is exactly the sort of contribution we could help make. So final, final question, how should we judge your success or failure? I think, as I say, I think that the, the real judge, and this is pretty much the same answer that I gave when I was asked that question when I started at the OBR, uh, at that point, I was saying, don't judge us on the accuracy, on the precise accuracy of our forecast, which is fortunately not an excuse. I have to get in early here. But do people feel that there is more information about the way in which the government is spending and raising their money? Do people have a greater understanding and a greater trust that the figures that they are presented uh, with are... Uh, are based on good professional judgment, not on politically motivated, wishful thinking. And have you just managed to bring more light to the shady areas of uh, the shadier areas of, of public finance? And uh, that's what I tried to achieve at the OPR, and it's what I, I think we can hope to try to achieve here. Thank you. Okay, Gemma. Thank you, and thank you all for coming today. You'll be glad to know my question is simple and quick. Um, do you think that some of the chapters can go to the full time or part time? I'm terribly sorry. I'm getting a lot of feedback. I don't know whether the chair could repeat the question for me. I couldn't hear the question either. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. It doesn't matter. I can email it to you. something about full, full, full time or part time? Yeah. Um, whether I should be full-time or part-time. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I'm perfectly happy on the, on the basis of the, of the, uh, uh, of the part-time role I've been given uh, at the moment. I think, you know, it's clearly a very different role from the, the full-blown forecasting operation uh, that I had to run when I was at the, uh, at the OBR. So uh, I think the honest answer is that you have to get the institution up and running, you have to start producing the outputs, and then you see whether the resources are adequate to the task or not. And if they aren't adequate, whether the best way of spending the marginal pound is having more of, you know, council members' time versus more staff support uh, be, uh, would, I'm sure, be an open question. But I think the, the short answer is we have to, we have to get on with the job uh, and come back. It's another reason why not putting things like the budget too inflexibly into legislation, because we are learning as we're doing, uh, is quite important. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, and the other question is just, uh, it could be the same answer, actually. Um, what's your view on having a maximum period of service for the chair and council members? I, th I think that's perfectly sensible. In the UK uh, context, I had, uh, it was a maximum of, I, I served the, the two five-year terms that I was permitted to serve. 
I think, you know, leaving aside the particularities of a fiscal council, you know, spending more than a decade running an institution is probably not in your own best interests or indeed in the best interests of the institution that you're running. So while I would cheerfully have carried on, uh, I think it's probably good for me and good for them that I wasn't allowed to. Uh, you know, I, I refer you to the US political process as well. No problem. Thank you, Chair. That's my questions. Thanks, Gemma. Thanks very much indeed. To Robert, uh, sort of just a, a final point. Um, the idea of doing a comparative study, and obviously sort of health immediately stands out because it's 51% of our budget, and many people would say that Northern Ireland government is essentially the Department of Health with a few other bits tagged on. Uh, but one of the issues we do have is bearing in mind with the block grant, uh, do we actually get value for money for the services that we have? And the comparator between what's delivered across the rest of these islands, I think, is quite an important piece of work that may probably need to be done before we start doing deep dives into particular sort of um, departmental areas. And I'm only saying that because, you know, I did appoint the health minister, but that's neither here nor there. But we need to be able to understand whether we're getting effective governance for our block grant at the moment. And of course, I don't think anybody can put their hands in their hearts and say we are achieving the best value for money or whatever it is, or even a comparator to do that as well. I don't even think we know the delta of the difference between what we deliver, let's say, in our education sector and what is actually delivered, let's say, in sort of the southeast of England or Wales or Scotland or wherever it happens to be. Even that degree of analysis, I think, is quite important. And sort of some of the discussions that we're beginning to see now about sort of um, what's going to happen after the next elections here in the Assembly and we're moving on to the next stage where, of course, by which time we really hope that the sort of the Independent Fiscal Council is fully embedded into the process. So that, I would be suggesting from this chair here, is a piece of work we would probably like to see first before we sort of delve down into one particular area first. So first of all, we find out how far we are away from the work from everywhere else. Then we can look at sort of, sort of individual sort of sectors to do that. That's just an observation. But how do you see, it's a final question, how do you see this interrelationship between the Fiscal Council, the Fiscal Commission, and sort of this committee, and in the wider terms, the legislature? I, you know, you've already taken a, a quite a lot of evidence. You know, I've already talked to you separately as sort of from a party's perspective. How do you see that sort of interrelationship and that triangle working? Well, I think certainly, I mean, in, in, the, in the steady state, obviously, it's going to be a bilateral relationship between uh, us and the committee. And I see that just as I did with the Treasury Committee back in the, uh, in the Westminster context as being an absolutely key uh, stakeholder. You are, you know, amongst the most informed people with questions to ask about the things that we're supposed to be looking at uh, that you would be that you were willing to find. We are not, you know, as I always used to say to the Treasury Committee in, in London, we should be, you know, uh, 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 accountable to and responsive to both the executive and the legislature, but independent uh, of both. Uh, but that is a very important relationship, and we'll be wanting to talk about whether you think we're delivering uh, news you can use, uh, as it were, and an analysis that's actually helpful, and also, of course, you know, in the form and in the and on the timescales that are uh, what you need for for budget consideration. In terms of the relationship with the. Uh, with the um, uh, Fiscal Commission, 
Uh, I mean, they, they are separate tasks. I think one thing, obviously, I've spoken a bit to, to Paul about about this. There is a there are models, obviously, from Wales and Scotland about the sorts of programmes of work that the Commission will be underway. So I'm sure some of it will be familiar from that, and they may have particularly different ways that they want to do that. There may be a a shared usefulness of our initial introductory guide work that may also be helpful and feeding into what they're doing, and there may be some scope for, you know, uh, uh, using resources effectively there. In the longer term, of course, when the, when, the, when the Commission ceases its work, there will be a pool of, of informed people who have been working in this area that I shall be looking greedily upon for the, the longer term funding of the, uh, and, and uh, resourcing of the, of the Council, because clearly in the near term, there's obviously needing a division of, of resources, which means that uh, I, I suspect we will have more capacity you know, in the steady state than we will have while the two of us are operating in parallel. But it's certainly not our job to be telling the Commission what to conclude. One thing, obviously, I would be keen on is if the Commission has proposals for greater or, or different forms of devolution, that they give thought to the task that that would then leave the Council and indeed the you and the, and the Department of Finance to, to deal with in managing that process uh, uh, thereafter. So um, I look forward with great interest to seeing, you know, where they go with their discussions and then obviously what you and the, and the political side do with whatever recommendations they come up with. And we'll obviously be keen to talk and to share information and expertise and, and, and avoid duplication as far as we can in the meantime. Okay. Thanks very much, Ray. Um, sir, Maureen Allen, have you anything to add? Uh, if I just add a quick one, Chair, if I may, and it's on your question there about the relationship between the uh, the Fiscal Council and the, the Finance Committee. Uh, so just drawing on my experience when I was on the uh, the Fiscal Council here in the Republic, the um, obviously we, we'd uh, write the reports, we'd release the reports, and we'd press release or you know do a, a, a launch and, and discuss the reports at that time, and we always got good coverage. Uh, but in many ways, it was a couple of weeks after this that typically we went to the Oireachtas the Finance Committee and then the Budget Committee. But it was through the interrogation, actually, that a lot of the issues that were in the report were kind of, you know, brought to life and illuminated. And there was often a, a sort of a second round of media reporting of our reports in the context of uh, the committee's questions. Uh, and obviously, you know, we keep talking all the time that uh, education and informing is an important part of the role. So if I can put it back, it's almost like a challenge to you and your, your colleagues on the committee. Uh, it'll be up to you to sort of come along and ask us the sort of interesting, engaging questions uh, that will keep the sort of the media uh, interested in, in our, our joint work. And to, to go to one of Jim Allister's questions about, you know, what does success look uh, like? Again, when I was on the, you know, the fiscal council here in the Republic, it was when a media interview of a minister began with the lines, the fiscal council have said X, how do you respond? That idea that what you're saying is kind of considered authoritative and challenging. Uh, I think those are some of the dimensions uh, along which success uh, can be measured. But as I said, maybe the, the next time we're talking to the, commi the committee, you'll remember the, the challenge that we're setting, which is to uh, engage and uh, ask us the questions that really is that illuminate what we're Alan, that's quite interesting because I do remember um, obviously going every time the, the, uh, uh, the report came out in Dublin and I remember sort of going to the numerous briefs we went to, we either went to IBEC or we went to sort of, the, sort of the numerous briefs that were being held 
And there was a big role for what I would call informed civil society and sort of uh, that sort of degree of engagement. And that's the bit that I think we also need to develop here in Northern Ireland. There needs to be that degree of, it is of significant importance when the report is published and it has that uh, sort of analysis. And, you know, uh, I mean, I can't remember how many breakfasts, you, you like me, Alan, would have gone round to the numerous breakfasts, you would have gone to IBEX breakfasts, you would have gone to the PWCs, you would have gone to EYs, you would have done the whole thing. But the reality was that was part of the landscape and you knew exactly when that was going to take in the time of the year. Sort of, you knew the engagement with the political process that was going to happen beyond that. And it was very much fixed in the timetable to do that. And again, that created the sense of the scrutiny's coming. And there's, you know, this, you know, all the work had to be done beforehand to be able to get to that point. We, I, you know, I, I sense we are a very, very long way away from that yet. But that's why we need to get the building blocks in and why we need to get it on a statutory basis so that we can actually get this process rolling. But I think that's a very valid point, Alan. Uh, but it, you know, I, I would see as well a significant role for what I would call wider civil society in Northern Ireland as well as us and people becoming really latched on to this is the thing we need to keep on looking at because this is the degree of scrutiny and understanding we need to have. You know, we need to be able to hold truth to par but equally we need to be able to do it in an informed way and I think that's one of the, the important pieces we need to see. Um, could, I, could I just make a point, um, it's actually just linked in with both that and what Gemma said earlier about the term of the council members and indeed the staff you were, we're at a very, very early stage we've been building up hopefully an awful lot of expertise and there's a tendency here to move things on build up the expertise and someone moves so it was just to say that you know it's important that investment is made and is given time as well to come to fruition so that we can make better informed decisions and we are able to to help in that whole process going forward so probably saying um you know am i talking myself into an another term and a job but you know in a sense you know it, it's, it has to be given time to build up that level of expertise both in terms of the members and also in terms of the um the, the staff within the council as well okay uh, so robert alan uh, maureen and i know esmond's gone away but thank you very much indeed for your evidence session and thank you very much indeed for everything you've done uh but we've got a lot of work to do and uh as soon as we can get this um sort of up and rolling and I'm really looking forward to reading the handbook. Maybe I can have the second copy after you've presented it to the Finance Minister. Um, the other issue I'd, I would like to say as a final piece when we're talking about memorandum of understanding, the new relationship we have in Northern Ireland and the role of the Executive Office and also the role of the Northern Ireland Executive and how the departments in many respects spend most of their lives working in uh, sort of stovepipes despite the best efforts to bring it together. I think it's very important that this MOU is not just with the Department of Finance, but it's, it's spread out further, because I think that's going to be something that's going to be very important um, as, we, as we move forward. Okay, but thanks very much indeed. Cheers, everybody. Thank you very Thank much you. for your time. No, no problem. Thank, Thank you. Thanks, bye-bye. Okay, Tim. Oh, just me and Jim and everybody else. Uh, we're just going to move into private session. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Signed.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern... Back in open session, moving into correspondence. Uh, item uh, correspondence index. Members are asked to note the index of 13 received items, and for, uh, at page 259 and three tabled items. Uh, first of all, building fire safety. Members are asked to consider at page 262 a response on the cross-departmental group on building safety, which held its initial meeting on the 25th of May. The department has not responded to the committee's query in respect to the Northern Ireland Housing Executive's Tar Block Action Plan. Um, Members, are we content to write to the Department for Communities and indeed the Executive Office? Because I understand the interim head of the civil service is the person who is responsible for looking at these building regulations in respect of the Northern Ireland Housing Executive Tar Block Action Plan. Because I don't think this is acceptable. Yeah, absolutely. Are we agreed to write? Yes. Great. Thank you. Uh, next, the reform of the property management programme. Members are asked to consider a departmental response at page 273 regarding reform of the property management programme. The department indicates that hard charging is not to be applied to departments. Sorry, I thought they told us hard charging was being applied to departments. Uh, I think in the uh, audit office report it was indicated that it would be, but then when the department gave evidence and in their correspondence they indicated that it will not. Right. So the NIO's report on the uh, reform of property management indicated the Department of Finance indicated that in 2016 the principle of hard charging for office accommodation had been accepted. Yes. And it's agreed by the NICS board. Yes. And that the RPM programme was planning the rollout of hard charging by April 2019. Yes. Which had we been informed of. Okay. So now we're being told they're not. Correct. Okay. Um, I think I want to write to the. I think we should be writing to the department asking why the previous undertaking to the Northern Ireland Audit Office rehard charging has not been taken forward. Are we agreed? Agreed. Agreed. 
Uh, ISNI Investing Activity Report for May. Members are asked to note at page 276 the Investment Strategy Northern Ireland Investment Investing Activity Report for May. Are we content to note? Content. Uh, NICS work, Workforce Review 2019. Members are asked to consider at page 279 a departmental response to committee queries re the AO, SO and uh, DP recruitment exercises. The Department has declined to provide information on breakdown of the successful applicants, indicating that these recruitments have remained open, two of them for s several years. The links provided to the Department show the majority of the applicants to the DP recruitment were internal, whereas the AO applicants were largely external. It is difficult to see how the Department is to address unfair participation identified in the review when such a high percentage of DP applicants were internal. I think the Minister indicated that he was in recruitment processes and opening up recruitments when he made a response to a question during uh, questions on Tuesday, I think. There was, a, there was an issue that was raised about recruitment, and did I raise a question about fast stream? But as part of the process, there was there was questions about sort of the various processes and how the minister indicated uh, processes that he was bringing in to ensure this is a fair and open um, recruitment process. Um, members, are we content to write to the department indicating that it expects the department to provide the information that we've asked for, please? Agreed. Uh, item 10.6, Whole of Government Accounts. Members are asked to consider at page 295 a departmental response regarding why the Forest Service has only lately been added to the Whole of Government Accounts designated bodies. The Department indicates that the Forest Service has been reclassified from an agency to a public corporation. Are members content to write to the Department seeking information on the designation of all arm's length bodies? I think we are agreed. Agreed. Uh, budget number two, Bill and main estimates. Members are asked to note at page 298 a follow-up from the Department to the briefing by officials in budget number two, Bill, and the main estimates. The Department provides information on Northern Ireland Protocol funding, the Executive COVID Task Force and the TEO budget changes. Any comments or are we content to note? Noted. Uh, item 10.8, TEO victims, tabled items. Members are asked to note at page 44 of tabled items a response from the First Minister and Deputy First Minister to committee correspondence sent on the 18th of January with the funding for the Victims' Pension Scheme. Information is provided on the anticipated expenditure for the next few years. Of note, you'll notice the Minister said, I think it was £19 million. He stated uh, in response to questions and also in the Budget uh, that had been allocated this year for the Victims' Pension. Members, are we content to note that correspondence? Uh, Chair, I wanted to make a point about that. Yeah, go ahead. The administration costs are totally out of kilter. A big expenditure. The rule of thumb tends to be you might have ten percent of a program on administration. According to these budgetary figures, about twenty-three percent of this is going on administration. You have six point seven million on administration and nineteen twenty-one million on actual payments. How can that be? Um, there was an indication. Uh, wasn't there a question raised on the floor reference business cases and business cases for, or maybe it's an issue had been raised in the committee? Uh, sorry, somebody might have to correct uh, my sort of memory. 
But there is an issue here about sort of the business case and the business case that would have been created for the victim's pension, and obviously looking at the initial start-up costs and the administration costs, and that how that was being uh, brought about by the Executive Office and the Justice Department. Should we be asking to get some more clarity on the business case so that we can actually see what the breakdown in the costs are? I think you should be asking for an explanation as to how the administrative costs are such a high proportion via the actual amounts. Okay. Okay. Are we content? Great. Okay. <clears throat> uh, COVID support tabled items. Members are asked to note at page 48 of tabled items correspondence from the Minister in respect to the payment of COVID supports to business. This was circulated to members this week. Are we content to note? So noted. June monitoring. Members are asked to note at page 50 of table items correspondence from the Department in line with the Functioning of Government Act Miscellaneous Provisions Northern Ireland Act 2021, which sets out the Department's final monitoring round submissions. Members, are we content to note? Noted. Uh, CARA Budget 2122, uh, or sorry, DERA, should that be? So it's from the committee. Oh, committee. Sorry, Members are asked to note a response from the Committee for Agriculture on Budget 2122. Are we content to note? Okay. Uh, response from the Committee for uh, Infrastructure, are we content to note? Uh, item number 13, NIO New Deal Funding. Members are asked to note on page 308 a response from the Northern Ireland Office regarding allocation of New Deal funding, indicating decision-making sits with the Northern Ireland Secretary of State. And the Permanent Secretary has declined to answer any of the Committee's requiries in respect of how decisions are arrived at. Are we content to note, or will we rather write back to the Permanent Secretary of the Northern Ireland Office and ask them for further explanation? Right back. Uh, I could have, I could have bet. <laughs> I'm surprised they even had to ask that question. Okay, we content to write back? Agreed. Uh, next item, civil service pensioner pay run. Members are asked to note at page 312, correspondence from the Department regarding an error relating to the May Civil Service Pension of Pay Run. This was previously circulated to members. Are we content to note? Note. Ah. Item number 15, Northern Ireland Audit Office, Surplus Land Sales. Members are asked to note on page 314 a response from the Controller and Auditor General of the Northern Ireland Audit Office in regards to surplus land sales. The committee is advised that the audit office is currently carrying out a review of the processes which followed, which, which followed, which resulted in the sale of Portavo Reservoir, and hopes to be in a position to publish a report on this in the near future. The controller adds that the audit office will consider a review of surplus lands as part of the future public reporting programme. Would you like to make a comment, Jim? You seem to have had an effect. No, Matthew O'Toole beat me down last night, which is completely nagger. <laughs> Are we content to note? Content. Okay. Uh, that means then we will get the report back. If it's at the audit office, we have to wait until it's. Um, I imagine it will be published so we can see it. Okay. Um, but then it will go to the Public Accounts Committee before it comes to, to the uh, Finance Committee. Yeah. Sort of. Uh, Paul, our able deputy and soon-to-be minister, could you take uh, item 1016, please? Because I've made a declaration of interest about Strayed Primary School. You got it in front of you. Okay. I'll, uh, sorry, I was in mute. Sorry, I was in mute. Uh, is it in table papers, chair, or is it in the? 
Okay. Page, page, page 317. That's page 15 of the chair's brief. No, page 15 I, of the chair's brief. Sorry. Sorry, you got me off the hook. Resign. 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 <laughs> Okay, bear with me, folks, because I'm trying to get my uh, chair's brief up, and it's... Chining in North Africa. Oh, it's, it's quite a nice day in Palomina, by the look of it. Yeah, I was looking out the window there, and that's why I... <laughs> <laughs> that's a blue compliment to you as vice-chair. <laughs> My, uh, it's great when you can blame technology, isn't it? Yeah. So page, well, page five of the chair's brief or fifteen? Uh, page, page fifteen, Paul. It's not responding, folks. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll read it out, but you can you can share the discussion. Uh, members are asked to note at page three hundred seventeen correspondence from a member of the public stating their objection. To the proposed closure of the excellent Strayed Primary School, which I know that the Education Minister will immediately uh, decide to keep open. I can say that because I'm not sure in this okay. particular section. Are members content to note the, the correspondence to the Committee for Education? Uh, note to forward the correspondence to the Committee for Education. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. If you can hand it back to me, then Paul. Okay. Thanks. Uh, next I, item I'll is. Okay. Next item is Department of Finance uh, update and pay award 2020. Members are asked to note at page 318 correspondence from the department providing an update on the Northern Ireland Civil Service pay award effective from the 1st of August 2021. Members, are we content to note or does anybody wish to make a comment? Note. Uh, and we're asked to consider the composite request at page 320. Are we content? Agreed. If you move on to Forward Work Programme, Forward Work Programme is page 338. Uh, Monday, the 7th of 2020, uh, Monday the 7th of June saw the first stage of the defamation, defamation Bill. It is anticipated that the following, following second stage the Bill will be referred to the Committee for Finance for its committee stage. However, the date of the second stage has not been agreed by the Business Committee as yet. Not to my knowledge, no. It is not on the order paper yet, so we just okay, don't know right. when it is going to be. Okay. I think it's probably coming up. Okay. If the second stage takes place before summer recess, is the committee content to reorganise its work programme and seek a briefing from the assemb from assembly research and the bill sponsor prior to the second stage? Agreed. There are a few scheduled committee meetings left. Perhaps the committee could refer again the briefing on rates from the Ulster University on the 23rd of June 2021. Instead, schedule a, uh, a raised briefing on the definition bill. And also ask the bill sponsor to provide a briefing on his bill at this time. I think that probably works on the 23rd of June. Okay. Okay. Members, that Are we seek to adopt this? Content to adopt this approach? Great. If the bill passes the second stage, the call for evidence will probably be from September to October. Yep. With oral evidence sessions from November to December, and final sessions with the sponsor in January. Is the committee content to write to the bill sponsor and the sponsor in these terms? In order to ensure that he makes himself available as appropriate at these times, are we agreed? Agreed. A memo concerning next week's concurrent meeting, as at page 342. Additionally, a raised paper in High Street issues is also provided at page 54 of tabled items. Members asked to note both of these and to advise the clerk they are to attend 
in person the concurrent meeting on the High Street and related members on the 16th of June 2021 in the Assembly Chamber, and if they are available for the photo op. Okay. Are we content to note? Content to note, yeah. Good. And then you can all celebrate my birthday shortly thereafter. Thank you. All right. Uh, members are asked to note that the committee for the uh, committee for the executive office will issue a meeting pack for the 16th of June. The clerk of the finance committee will endeavour to devise relevant questions that can be shared with members in advance. As there are so many members attending, the clerk of the committee for the executive office may attempt to prearrange questioning by members. I think we're content with that. Great. Great. Are we content with the forward work programme? Yeah. Great. Uh, members, uh, we're asked to note that the examiner of statutory rules has reported on. SR 1192-2021, the rates exemption for automatic telling machines in rural areas regulations in Northern Ireland 21, and S statutory rule 2021-127, the official statistics amendment order in Northern Ireland 2021. The ESR had no comment to make on either rule, which is understood, which it is understood may be debated on the 14th of June. Are we content to note? Agreed. Content. Thank you very much indeed. Date and time of the next meeting will be on the of the next meeting for the Committee for Finance will be uh, in here on the 23rd of June. Okay, and our joint meeting next Wednesday, same time is it? Yes, it's two o'clock in the Assembly Chamber. So if members can indicate if they're going to attend in person, just to let me know, and I'll let them know. Okay, um, so they can make sure you get a chair. Okay, team. Thanks very much indeed, and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Okay, thank you. Bye, bye, members. Thank you. Thank you. Bye -bye. Program signed.